This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, just the other day, my uh, seven-year-old and nine-year-old were uh, were in the back seat of my car, and they weren't getting along. I don't know if you've ever been there, and I don't know if I'm a good parent or a bad parent for how I handled this, but I I couldn't quite tell. Did you know? Did the seven-year-old antagonize the nine-year-old? Did I just catch the nine-year-old hitting back as you're prone to do as a parent, or were they both guilty? Should I do something? Should I do nothing? Should I let them handle it by themselves? But I was kind of uh, kind of fed up with it. And so when we got into the driveway, I literally looked at him in the rearview mirror and I said to the, uh, to the nine-year-old, tell me what you think happened. And of course, she gave me her side of the story. And then I said to the seven-year-old, okay, no more talking for the nine-year-old. Seven-year-old, tell me what you think happened. And then she gave me her side of the story. And I said, you're both guilty. And I got out of the car. I didn't even tell them what there was punishment or nothing. But they were upset by the concept of me saying, you are both indicted. You're both guilty. There was no punishment attached to it. I, I don't it, you know, I don't know if they've even figured it out yet. But I think they sensed my disappointment with them. And so I'm kind of wondering today. Does Michigan understand why the Big Ten Conference is upset with it? The Big Ten Conference announced just about an hour and a half ago that it has um, found that the Michigan football program is in violation of a sportsmanship policy. This is kind of like getting Al Capone on tax evasion, is it not? Violation of the sportsmanship policy. Michigan football program. I'm just going to read, kind of paraphrase what the uh, what the press release said. I'm going to tell you what I think about it. Big Ten Conference announcing that Michigan is in violation of the sportsmanship policy uh, for conducting an impermissible in-person scouting operation on, over multiple years. It has resulted in an unfair competitive advantage. It has compromised the integrity of competition. And the Big Ten Conference then cited the agreement 10 Point zero one that states in part that the conference expects all contests involving a member institution to be conducted without compromise to any element of sportsmanship. Such fundamental elements include integrity of the competition, civility toward all, and respect particularly toward opponents and officials. Um, as a penalty, the Big Ten Conference is um, slapping Michigan with sanctions that include the fact that Michigan must now compete for the next three games without its head football coach, effective immediately. So Michigan was a four-and-a-half-point favorite, headed to Penn State, and uh, now is a pick 
without their head football coach playing at Penn State. We'll uh, discuss in a moment whether or not we think that uh, the Michigan football team will rally or will they look distracted and uh, and will they splinter amid this news. Now, the dis- disciplinary action does not preclude Coach Jim Harbaugh from being at practices or other football team activities, just the games. Uh, for clarity, the conference writes in its release, quote, the head football coach shall not be present at the game venue on the dates of the game to which this disciplinary action applies. So here's, you know, it's a little bit, um, you know, I think that you need some unpacking when you talk about this, this process that is going on. I think the Big Ten Conference is coming down hard on Jim Harbaugh. I think you have to remember that it's not the Big Ten Conference, like an entity that's sitting in Chicago that ultimately is levying this discipline. It's the member institutions that comprise the Big Ten Conference. It's Illinois. It's Northwestern. It's Ohio State. It's everybody in that conference that is probably sick and tired of seeing Michigan win and probably a little bit annoyed that Michigan pointed a finger back at everybody else to sort of justify what uh, many believe is a uh, unfair competitive advantage that the Wolverines have derived by having a coach or a support staff person present at, at future opponent games, filming their sideline. Now, I've wrestled with this for several weeks. When this initially came out, I kind of said, I'm not so sure this is a huge deal. I need to talk to coaches. I need to know whether or not coaches themselves think it's a huge deal. And, you know, both Jonathan Smith and Dan Landing have indicated to me that they think that this is a competitive advantage, that, that you know, filming somebody's practices or filming somebody's game signals and having somebody do that advanced scouting is a competitive advantage. Now, you decide how big of an advantage it is. Everybody is out there trying to steal signs, and I'm not justifying what Michigan did, but clearly everybody's trying to steal signs. This cannot have possibly been the first offense. But it's evident. Like even yesterday when I was talking to Dan Lanning on this show, he brought it up. I said, hey, I was at the Michigan game in like 2007, and Oregon was playing there, and then he made a joke about, you know, hey, was the guy who was stealing uh, signs at that game that day? You know, and, and I've asked him out and out on this show whether he thinks it was a big deal that, you know, if somebody is stealing signs. And Dan Lanning has indicated that, yeah, that's a, that's a huge, that's an advantage. That's a competitive advantage. Now, Jonathan Smith talked about it as well, said he thought it created a competitive advantage as well. But, you know, here's Dan Lanning. Uh, you know, he, he joined us and talked about it, and he also talked about it with other media entities. Well, I think that'll all take care of itself. Um, obviously, that the, the operation there is, um, you know, that, that was different. And the more that comes out, I think the more people realize that's not the way it's supposed to work. It's not the way college football is supposed to work. Um, but, but that'll all take care of itself. That's, that's not on my plate, which I'm glad it's not. Yeah, glad he doesn't have to do it. Um, and glad uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, glad he's not going to be prone to that. Now, um, he was also asked in another setting um, about Michigan scouting the Oregon and Washington game a year ago, and he had this to say. Yeah, um, I don't have a lot of really thoughts on it. I, I haven't been focused on it that much. I mean, ultimately, I think that'll all sort itself out. That'll all sort itself out. But it, you can tell it's been on his mind. I want to know from you. 
I want to know two things. One, how big a deal is this? Is it, are you in the camp that says, it's just plain wrong? Cheating is cheating. It's a violation of sportsmanship. It's going too far. Michigan got caught. They should have to face the music. Are you in that camp? Or are you in the camp that says, hey, everybody's doing it. Uh, It's not that big a deal. And uh, I don't know why the Big Ten Conference is coming down so hard on Michigan. Those are two camps. So I want you to answer that question first. Secondarily, I want you to tell me this. How do you think the Michigan players will react tomorrow as they travel to Penn State to play the ninth-ranked team in the country? They are sitting in the uh, top four in the college football playoff rankings. They're watching their coach get you know, vilified. He has been sanctioned. How do you think Michigan as a team will react on the field tomorrow? Will they look better than ever? play lights out, rally around it, or do they look distracted? Do they look a little disjointed? And do they come out flat? 503-417-7575. Let's unpack this. Um, look, I'm, I, I don't mind what the Big Ten Conference did, but I think the Big Ten Conference knows Michigan's going to push back. There are going to be attorneys, so many attorneys, who will take this case probably pro bono, and say, oh, I just want to sue the pants off the Big Ten Conference because I'm just not sure it's enforceable the way that they are interpreting the sportsmanship policy. It appears to me that they're trying to get Al Capone on tax evasion. Stephen, what do you see? Yeah, I've said it. I think it's egregious the whole time. I think the suspension is egregious for Jim Harbaugh. Like, I understand that they cheated, and I understand that they went about it the wrong way. Um, They shouldn't have gotten caught this way. But I find it hard to believe that other teams and other schools aren't sending guys out to other games or other play, or other people are, are just doing this and then giving up you know the video that they get from games willingly to these teams like I just find it very hard to believe that Michigan is the only team that has been doing this okay but does, is that the justification because it looked to me like in the response from the Big Ten conference there was language in there about you know that this that because other people are doing it doesn't justify it. So let's focus on that part, because you keep saying everybody's doing it. If everybody's doing it, does it make it wrong that you got caught, or, or what do you think about that? No, I, I think that they sh- there should be some type of punishment for it. Like, again, I think that they are they're dumb for getting caught. Like, it's one of those things that you shouldn't have happened to yourself. You're a better program than that. You shouldn't get caught for it. But at the same time, I also think that the fact that it's scouting. Like, they're getting punished for going above and beyond scouting. Like, in high school sports, you can go out and you can watch other teams' games. You can send a coach out, and they can watch the game. Like, that's what they're doing. All they're doing is videotaping it, and they got caught doing it. Like, I just, I feel like it shouldn't be a three-game suspension where you lose your head coach on the sidelines for something that is, is, is just scouting. Like, these other teams are getting it by asking other teams. So all they should have done was just ask. They should just ask these other opponents to get information about these about their teams. But instead, they went out and they wanted to do it themselves. They wanted to trust this Connor Stallions guy. And now, you know what? It's it's just they got caught, and they should get punished somehow. But it shouldn't be a Jim Harbaugh three-game suspension. It, it really shouldn't be. I think if you are the Big Ten Conference, leaning into the sportsmanship thing is interesting. And I find it weird that you're going to say he can't go to the games, but he can go to practice. Like, you're going halfway with it. I would have much preferred the Big Ten Conference to say, hey, he's suspended for two games, game and a half, one game, I don't know. But And he can't be around the team at all. Because you're basically just saying, the guy's allowed to coach, he can be at practices, 
he just can't facilitate the game management and the game plan during game day. Like, it's weird to me to see that happening, and they're being explicit that he can't be in the stadium. And the more I look at it, you know, Charlie Baker, the NCAA sort of handed down to the Big Ten Conference some documentation that said that they could prove that Michigan not only filmed other teams uh, and, and, you know, had the ability, but that they also shared that video with the Michigan coaching staff. Like, this goes way far. It is one of these cases where I think Michigan's going to be really, really unhappy. I think a lot of people who care about the Big Ten Conference are going to be uneasy about what it means. There's been some talk about, will Michigan now decide that it doesn't need the Big Ten Conference? Will it go independent? Yeah, could it threaten to go independent? Like, I, I, I think there's going to be some really bad feelings right now wrapped into this. On the second part of my question, 503-417-7575, you want to weigh in. Second part of my question, how will this Michigan team react in Ann Arbor? Spread goes from Michigan minus 4.5 to a pick em. Steven, how do they react? Man, that's that's crazy. A 4.5-point swing because of the head coach. I, I think that Michigan reacts... It's hard to say. I, I don't think that they're going to – I think that they're going to lose. I think they're going to lose on Saturday to Penn State. And I think it's because it's hard as a college kid to embrace that villain role. Like, I think Jim Harbaugh can embrace the villain role really well, right? Like, he already knows that people don't like him. He already knows that he's going to be that guy. And I think that a lot of this suspension has to do with because people just don't like Jim Harbaugh. Wait, so you're saying that they're basically going, we don't like Harbaugh. Let's get rid of him. Yes. And you I, know. And I think yeah. it's hard for the going to be hard for 19, 20, 21 year olds to be like, you know what? Yeah, we're the villain. Come and hate us. We're going into Penn State. Like I think that's just a tough role to take. We saw even LeBron James when he went to the Heat. Like he couldn't embrace the villain role. I think it's tough as a 21 year old to be like, yeah, everyone hates us. Let's go in and use his motivation. I think it does affect them somehow, some way. And just not having Harbaugh on the sidelines, I do think that's worth something. You know, I don't know what it's worth, but I think that is worth something. So. I, I want to say the players are going to rally. I want to. I want to believe that they're going to rally around him and that they're going to play lights out. But I'm not sure. Like I, I just don't know what his relationship is with his players. Is is he that kind of guy where they're that into him? And will they view this as it's the world against Michigan football? Which you know, Michigan football doesn't play from that from that standpoint very often. Michigan football walks into the stadium and the opponent goes, "Hey, it's the world against us. We're the uninvited guest." That's Michigan over on the other side. Now Michigan gets to walk into Penn State and and gets to say, hey, um, you know, we are we're we're victimized. We you know, and we're going to fight back. Like I I think it's a really interesting juxtaposition for Michigan to find itself in. And and everybody's mad at Tony Petiti, the the Big Ten Conference Commissioner. And I think you know I think what he's doing here is he's borrowing a little bit from the George Klyovkov playbook. I think he is he has uh, licked his finger. I think he's stuck it in the air. And I think he knows which way the wind's blowing. Like, there's one vote for Michigan, and then everybody else in the Big Ten Conference, you might be right about the fact that they're nauseated with Jim Harbaugh's act and Michigan's act, but everybody else in the Big Ten Conference is going, hey, um, we want this guy sanctioned. But not only that, Michigan's saying everybody else is cheating is a stain on the rest of us. And so I think Tony Petiti is doing the George Klyovkov thing. He's not necessarily leading He's just sort of taking the temperature and going, okay, I'm going to go with the majority in the room, which we have seen Klyovkov do over and over in the Pac-12 conference. Do you think that – I have a couple questions for you. So Biff Poggy, the head coach of Charlotte, he was Jim Harbaugh's assistant at Michigan. He says he's been quiet on this, but he won't be quiet any longer. He says there's no way Harbaugh knew about this. He said he knows Harbaugh so well. He was so, you know, he was with him, around him. 
he thinks Harbaugh has no idea that Connor Stallions was doing this. He was doing it on his own. Do you believe that in any sort? I don't believe it, and I think if that's true, then I think it still has to be, you know, we, we have to say that the coach has to have institutional control, that everybody around your program, like it or not, you're responsible for what happens. You're responsible if there's cheating or somebody's deflating footballs or somebody's paying players under the table. You know, it doesn't matter if you have plausible deniability or not. Like, I, I think it matters. And then the other thing is, like, when I saw that tweet from Biff, I thought, is that a real person? Is that, is that really a I real had to person? Google it. I had to Google it. Yeah, <laughs> that is the coach. That's the coach of Charlotte. I had to Google that because I did the same thing. I thought Biff Poggy. No, I don't know. I but... thought it was a. I thought it was a burner. I just thought like, <laughs> that, okay, that I get it. That's a good it. burner name though. A good burner Twitter account. Um, <laughs> the other question I had for you is, you know, we talk about these. You know, these are kids. These are college students. There's gonna be a lot of distractions. Now there's the distraction of well, Harbaugh's out. He's gonna go to the NFL. Do you think that has any legs to it as well? I do, and I think, you know, we saw Chip Kelly do it and for, for much less. I mean, I think Chip Kelly left Oregon in part because there was a show-cost penalty coming down the pipeline. He was like, hey, I got to go. It's time for me to go. I'm not going to stay here and face the music. And I think, you know, whether this is just people being tired of Michigan winning and saying, look what they're doing, even though they know everybody else is doing it, or if this is a real case of, like Lincoln Riley said he thought it was worth double digits the fact that Michigan would have everybody, you know, some their opponents' signs. Uh, I want to go to the phone lines. Cam is in Eugene. Cam, what's on your mind? Hey, John. Happy Friday. I, I think Michigan has to be punished here because it, it's not a good faith mistake. Oregon got into some trouble with some comic books years and years back, and it was they had read the rule and acted in the spirit of it, but not in the letter. And then I think they adjusted the rule. But here you've got, and we use Washington State as the you know, poster child for the left behind. This isn't something that's in Washington State's budget if you want them to continue to be a big five or a power five school. Uh, they can't put somebody in a well, where's Waldo uniform and send them across the country to record somebody every week. It's not in everybody's budget, and so it goes be above and beyond simple sign rating. How Michigan's going to react? I think the players will be down for a while, but you know what, John, when they look up in the stands and they see Coach Harbaugh hiding out in the student section and all white with a walkie-talkie <laughs> in his hand, they'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> is that how it goes? Harbaugh parachuting. Has he got a drone above the stadium? That, I don't know. Or is the Bobby Valentine incognito in the, in the dugout <laughs> with the mustache and sunglasses? Oh. I, you know, in today's world, I mean, he could just watch the damn thing on television, couldn't he? And uh, be patched into somebody's uh, via telephone. He's seven he seconds goes, behind. He goes to like a bar, like a Michigan bar, and watches it with the fans. I yeah. Mean, uh, Jim, what are you doing? Uh, look, I'm going to ask Mike Riley about this. He's coming up, the former Oregon State head coach. I'll ask him what a competitive advantage that might be. Plus, he coached in the Big Ten. He was at Nebraska. I want to I wanna ask Mike Riley so many things. There's so much on my mind when it comes to Riley, but I'll ask him that coming up. First, let's take a call from D in Portland. Go ahead, D. Hey, John. How you doing? Have a, uh, how's your weekend or coming up? Good. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm stoked, man. we got a lot going on. What's on your mind? Yes, yes sir. Uh, I call BS on that. Harbaugh, he's the most control freak I've ever seen in, 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 in NFL in college, and now you're, you're trying to tell me you don't know nothing. Then how the heck did he get hired? Give me a break, John. Uh, These guys know everything. They see everything. But as soon as they get in trouble, oh, I haven't seen it. I haven't heard it. 
I haven't anything. Give me a break, John. Yeah. Hey, thank yeah. you. I appreciate it. Have yeah. a good one. Yeah. Look, and I'll say this. Even if he didn't know, it's your job to know. Mike Riley's coming up, former Oregon State uh, football coach. He's going into the Oregon State Athletics Hall of Fame. Uh, we'll talk to him about that, plus uh, his departure from Oregon State and a whole bunch more. Leave it here. Our next guest going into the Oregon State Hall of Fame in a class that includes uh, Stephen Jackson, Alexis Serna, Bob DeCarolis. Uh, Mike Riley is the winningest football coach in Oregon State history. The uh, head coach of the New Jersey Generals, man of the world. He's a father. He's a husband. He's all sorts of things. He's joining us now. How are you, Coach? Thanks, John. I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be on with you. Good to hear your voice, man. I I really uh, you know I know you and I have talked a couple times in uh, over the last few months and stuff, but uh, just yeah. good to hear your voice. You're back in Corvallis in the off season. What's it like to be back uh, to your home base? Oh, it feels like home. It, it, it's absolutely great. You know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm really fortunate because now I've got, I've got my, my family here close. I've, I'm, uh, I'm the, uh, my big job is being a chauffeur for the grandkids, <laughs> and, and, uh, and that, 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 that is, it's all really fun. I go to their games, whether it's soccer or flag football, and, and. Uh, and and you know it's just having the kids around. I didn't grow up with a with my grandparents, and I'm just enjoying just just being that guy, and it's 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 really fun. What's it like uh, for you to get that honor uh, induction into the Oregon State yeah. Athletics Hall of Fame? Well, you know how these things go, and as soon as you get the call about that, John, uh, you know it's. It, it's it absolutely feels like a great honor it's a humbling experience and and you think of all the all the people that um, are really responsible you know this this takes a ton of teamwork for you know a player has those those stats that get them in the hall of fame and and of course they get some help too from everybody else on the team but but a coach really has a team of people that all have to do their work you know whether it's coaches or players or equipment guys or the Trainers, you know, there's so many parts of this thing, and, and it, it's just, it's just really an award for everybody, and and I'm I'm really pleased and honored uh, for our group uh, to get recognized like this. I think I remember that when you were a kid, you you grew up like in the summer, you were painting the stadium, right? I mean, you you were kind <laughs> of a, you were around it, you know. Oh, I was a gym rat. I was definitely a gym rat, John, and I. Yes, I remember that, and I've been reflecting on on those times too. Because I used to walk around Gill, and I would like study all those pictures that were on the wall. You know, the hall of the hall of fame was just pictures around Gill, and and you know, just now to to think about that years later. And you're right. One of my summer jobs I got, I was painting the rails up in up in Parker Stadium while they were putting in new astroturf one year. They were going from the from the grass field to the new AstroTurf, and I watched them do that while I was painting the rails. And, yeah, so I've been hanging around, going going to all sorts of games as a kid. What a great town to grow up, grow up in and, and get to experience all those times. I remember sitting on the court when Kareem, and back then yeah. it was Lou Alcindor, came to town, and Bill Walton came to town, Pete Maravich came to town, and we all sat there and, and – and, uh, 
I'd get my buddies in on one ticket by throwing the ticket stub out my dad's window. <laughs> and, and it was just a great, great way to grow up. I was talking to a buddy today about the great track meets back in the day when, when uh, Bob Segrin was in town. And uh, USC had the, had the, I think they had the world record uh, 400, 400 for who was probably 440 back then, 440-yard yeah. relay. And, and we just saw fabulous athletes come through. It was just, just a great way to grow up. Mike Riley with us, former Oregon State football coach. Uh, you know, you're, you had two tenures at Oregon State. Yeah. I, I, love, I love the trivia question that you were both uh, Dennis Erickson's predecessor and successor. And you were each other's predecessor and successor as well. But, uh, you know, you, you arrive there and you become head coach in 97. There hadn't been a lot of success from a bowl standpoint. And, you know, you get it to passable five and six, and then you leave for the NFL. Erickson comes in. You come back, and within, like, you're about your fourth season back in that second tenure, you win ten games at Oregon State. Did you have any? Did you get? Were you able to reflect at any time at how how unthinkable that must have felt to to some longtime Beaver fans to see a ten win team? Yeah, it was it was it was a special time, and you know I feel I, I you know through all this you know Dennis and I have coached in these spring leagues together. You know we were coaching yeah. in the AAF together, and so I feel a bond with him, and and. You know, and I, and I look back on it, and I try not to have any regrets, but it was really hard to leave. And I, and I took that job with the Chargers and then watched Oregon State succeed, and it was an amazing story. And, and then to actually be able to, to come back, you know, a few years later and try to carry on what, 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 what Dennis was doing and, and then reach that point where we were, we were com- we were competitive all around in the league, and we had some you know hard moments. We had some great moments. That's what happens over a period of time. But I- I'm so thankful for it. It was really, really, really fun. You had I think we had talked before about going to the NFL, and Dennis says it was the worst decision he ever made to leave Oregon State for the NFL. But did <laughs> did did you? Let's talk about the two times you left Oregon State, which. Which one of those do you wish you could have back? Would, you know, going to the Chargers or going to Nebraska? Well, you know, that's, that's good because you lay in bed at night sometimes when you think, boy, when I went to Nebraska, I, was, I, I laid in bed late wondering what in the world I had done. And, you know, and I, I reflect on it. And, and I try, like I said, I try not to sit there and have regrets about anything because it would be unfair to the people that I, yeah. that I got to be associated with, like, John, think about if I hadn't gone to the Chargers, one of the great things in my career was being around Junior Seau. And I'm so, I'm I'm going to tell people tonight, I'm so thankful for him because he really, he really taught me a lot and taught me about being a pro. You know, he had already been to 10 straight Pro Bowls when I got there. And his first day of practice that I witnessed, it was like a rookie starting all over again with the enthusiasm of play, the great leadership. It was it was absolutely a, a, an honor uh, to be with him for that period of time. So I, and, you know, and, and and Jim Harbaugh was our quarterback for a year, and so being with Jim, so I I look back on those times without regret because I don't want to regret it because I'm thankful to have met 
and worked with those people. Same at Nebraska. I've still got some players from Nebraska that are playing on my team in the hmm. in the uh, USFL, which is really special. So I'm, you know, I'm not going to do any of that, but I'm yeah. just going to be thankful for it all and and let it ride from there. The in 2014 when you left was. Was there a feeling that you weren't appreciated? Was it you just had done it for a while and you wanted something new and it was a, a new challenge? Um, for people who are wondering, like, what was that trigger? For you, what was it? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I think you, you hit probably both. I thought maybe my time was, was – maybe the time was right. I think that the, it, it felt like that. Uh, both from the inside and the outside, you know, I'm talking about the university. I thought, you know, uh, that that might be good time, and I, I wondered really about my my future at Oregon State, what that was going to look like. And while I was wondering, because we had had a very average year, a couple yeah. in a row actually, and I was wondering, you know, what what that might all look like. And while I was wondering, Nebraska called me, yeah. and so. That that triggered it. It felt like good timing. I, I felt like we had we had done our best and done good some good work. And you know, I just wanted to continue coaching, and this was a good opportunity, obviously, to do that. I wouldn't have done it on the West Coast. It was something new, so I was intrigued by that. And I had, I I coached all over, so it wasn't new to me. It wasn't like yeah. something that I hadn't done before. So I felt kind of comfortable doing that, and. And but it was extremely hard, and it was it went so fast at that time that it was really hard initially until I got my feet down and started to go to work. Yeah, I'm watching the Pac-12, and you know you were on my mind as well because you know you grew up yeah. with the conference. It's sad to me to see what's happening to it, and then I'm watching some teams go off to the Big Ten, and I'm going, they might want to call Nebraska first, and and you know talk to them about what that experience is like. What yeah. what do people not know about competition in the Big Ten. That's, that's great, John, because I've, I've, re, I've read what you've, what you've said about it, and I, and I think that there's, there's a lot of questions about that. I think that when I got to Nebraska, I found out what that was really like uh, in the recruiting world because, you know, Nebraska's in one of those places where there's not, you're not going to furnish your team with all in-state players even close. You know, there's three or four or five guys maybe – in the state, so you've got to have a good recruiting plan. And all of a sudden, you leave the conference where you've been good and where you have, you know, kind of, kind of established your recruiting grounds. And now you're now in your different deal, and the recruiting is different. The the players that might have wanted to, you know, that you could get from Texas, that you were in that league, that where they could play at home once in a while, and their their parents could follow it more easily. It wasn't quite the same anymore. So we kind of had to start a whole new idea of how, how are we going to go about this. Now, recruiting has changed, I think, since then. But we, we really, really studied what was the best way, because of the new situation that Nebraska was in, to establish where we were going to recruit, where we were going to get our players, and uh, how this was going to look. Uh, but there's, 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 there's a, a lot to that. And, and now you add... You know, for these teams that are going, that the, the the travel. You know, you know, you you would make a trip like that. We played at Penn State, and we played at LSU, we played TCU down in Dallas, and we'd make a trip like that. 
but our whole world wasn't like that. So, you know, I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a ton to it that they're going to learn about as they go, and it won't all be fun. Mike Riley with us. The, um, uh, one of the big stories in football involves sign stealing and videotaping signs, and you've been around football long enough to know that, you know, people have tried to steal signs for as old as football has been played probably. But, um, how, you know, what do you make of that whole story? And, you know, I, I don't need you to talk about Jim Harbaugh or Michigan in particular, but just what do you make yeah. of the, the process of trying to steal signs? Where does it cross the line in your mind? Well, you know, you're right. It's been going on forever. I can remember being at Linfield and we're trying to get the signs from the other team. <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a real deal, and I never thought of it as any, any part of it breaking the rules. Now, from what I've heard about this, if indeed, you know, we've known for years in college football that you don't attend. It, it stopped years ago where you actually went and scouted. Uh, because you have such good video coming to you these days, you don't need to have the expense of sending a coach just to scout a game anymore. And so it became a rule that you, you couldn't go to another team's stadium. So if indeed that is happening, that adds a different layer to it. But as far as you know, when I first saw the story about stealing signs, I was saying, why is this such a big deal? It seemed to me initially like a misdemeanor. Yeah. Now, if you add that other layer to it, then then that that might that might change how, how people perceive it. And I think that that's where the yeah. crux of the problem is. If I, if I could get the other team's signs, what is, what is that worth, you know, in a game, to, in your opinion? Well... You know, I, I think there are some, sometimes it's, it's a hindrance, spending time. I've heard stories of people spending time, time trying to get the signal and then calling a play off of it and then running out of, a, out of the, the play clock, you know. I mean, there can be some issues that cause more problems than there are helpful. Now, now if you can get a couple of things that are relatively simple, for instance, if you can quickly get run or pass, that's helpful, you know. And if you can get the defensive coordinator, if you could get whether or not he's blitzing, that's helpful, you know. But whether or not you can get that and then get that information to the players or make the appropriate call in time, that's another issue. So I frankly think some of it's overrated because it's really not that easy to do and then to use it. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think too, if – yeah, there might there might just be some bad feelings about Michigan in general that are coming out in a variety of ways. Uh, Mike, Mike Riley with us. Um, all right, just uh, you know your thoughts now. USFL, are you having fun? You know, it's neat to you know I I, I watched a USFL game just because you were coaching in it. You know, I was flipping yeah. by and went, all right, I'm going to watch this. <laughs> I appreciate that. It is fun, and you know, for me, it's. It's like perfect at my, at my age and where I am in my career. It's it's you get you get your kind of your football fix, and it's it's still really really the most important part of it is really having a team and working with players. And they're all after something. They they're they're just like players right now in college that are working for that future opportunity and seeing what they can do. And so I find I find the players to be really hungry for football and love football you know these guys aren't making a lot of money so they gotta to be in it they gotta love it they love being on a team and and uh 
it's really I've, I've really enjoyed the players a lot and I think I've also taken a little bit more time as I've gotten older here in this deal to kind of stop and smell the roses John I go yeah. I spend a little more time in the locker room talking to guys and yeah you know learn more about them and it 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 has it for right now in my life you know it's about I, I work at it every day. We do personnel stuff, but, but I get to be here in Corvallis during that time, and then I go do that thing for about four months, and it's really fun. And I got, I got to bring Eli, my grandson, for training camp, and he hung around. I had him for seven weeks. We were roommates. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> it was, John, it was the time of my life. I, 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 I had so much fun with him, and I put him to work every day at practice, and then I'd throw some balls to him after practice every day. It was I get to do stuff like that and stay involved with the team that it it really really is special. I remember when he was born, and I can't believe he's out catching passes now. That's amazing. <laughs> That's remarkable. Um, I you know, know it is remarkable. Before yeah. I let you go, Bob DeCarolis also going into the Oregon uh, State Athletics Hall of Fame. That's your AD who was there for the bulk of your tenure. Um, what did Bob, what did Bob do? What did he mean to Oregon state at that time? Oh, Bob, Bob and I were very close and, and, uh, you know, he's the guy that made the hire, uh, when I came back, you know, after Dennis left and, and, uh, so I'm always just for that simple reason, you know, very thankful for him to give me that opportunity again. And, and then I think that we just had a good open relationship we talked about a lot all the time and and he was really supportive and he had a he had a great vision i mean and and you know the the remarkable thing uh you know what they've done recently with scott and then what bob got started was you know from 97 when i first came john to today every inch of that area has been renovated into something that Back then, in 97, nobody could imagine. I mean, we had the old AstroTurf, you know, that was still there probably from when I was painting the rails. And, and uh, you know, it's just been a remarkable change. And I think Bob instigated a lot of that and was responsible for getting it going and uh, and just did a great job for Oregon State. Well, Coach, I love having you on. I will definitely catch up with you when I'm in Corvallis. But congratulations on going into the Hall of Fame, getting your your picture on that wall, and some kid someday is going to walk by and look up at Mike Riley on the wall. Oh, that's 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 what's kind of surreal about this. I because I, you know, you you think of yourself growing up in this town as just that kid, you know, and and. Yeah. Uh, Get to see all these great players, so I'm really, really, it's, it's, it's really an amazing, amazing journey, and I'm very thankful for it. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate you it. You bet. All right, Mike Riley, there he goes. Oregon State, uh, long time, winning as coach in Oregon State history, in football, and going into the Oregon State Athletics Hall of Fame, along with Bob DeCarolis, Stephen Jackson, Mike Hass. Um, you know, you got a great class, Alexis Serna in that class, and. Uh, just a terrific honor for for Mike Riley, the longtime Oregon State football coach. Loved his comments on the transition to the Big Ten, on, sty- on sign stealing. You see, catch the laugh in there, Stephen. You know, is this about Michigan and people not liking Michigan? You know, and he's I, I, yeah. he kind of he kind of insinuated that it's a lot yeah. about uh, Harbaugh. Yeah, laughed about it, and uh, stay tuned on that front. Uh, you got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. 
I've been thinking a lot this week about what the University of Oregon's football game uh, against USC is really about. Or what one thing am I looking at when it, as it pertains to Oregon's football game against USC at Autzen Stadium. Huge game, big implications, a lot of focus on Oregon because Oregon is the sixth-ranked team in the college football playoff, and justifiably so, but... What am I really thinking about? What am I really looking at when I, when I come to that game? Or what one factor am I interested in seeing play out? And it's really simple for me on the Oregon side. And, and some games are not this simple. But as it pertains to Oregon and USC, I have no concerns about Bo Nix, the Oregon offense, the Ducks' ability to move the ball, to score on USC, Everybody's focused on this defensive coordinator switch, which I don't think is going to be that big of an impact in the game. You're still dealing with the same players. You're dealing with essentially the same scheme at at USC. You can't really control that if you're Oregon. If USC decides to scrap the entire you know, defensive um, philosophy and try something new with really just two full practice days and a walkthrough day, I, I think everybody's focused on the wrong thing. They've got their eye off the ball. I think the biggest factor is on the other side, and it has been all season. What were we talking about all off season with Oregon football? We weren't talking about Bo Nix. We weren't talking about how defenses would react to Oregon or what the defensive play calling might be. We weren't talking about any of that. We were talking about the defensive identity at Oregon. We talked about it all spring, all summer, all fall camp, and... You know, as much as you can point to the test that Oregon has had this season at Washington against Michael Penix Jr., certainly a test. On the road with Texas Tech, certainly a test. Shador Sanders in Colorado coming to Autzen Stadium, certainly a test. As much as you can point to those games or the Utah game on the road, um, this USC offense with Caleb Williams at quarterback, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, is one of the best offenses in the country and is built to exploit defenses. So this is the game, right? As much as you can talk about, hey, what is USC going to look like on defense, that's not what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about what is Oregon's identity going to be in this game on the defensive side of the ball. And can the Ducks, who have made incredible strides in finding balance on the defensive side of the ball and finding some identity on the defensive side of the ball, can they put it to work in this game against USC with the country watching, with the Pac-12 after dark spotlight on them, this is the game. This is the moment that we have been talking about. We talked about all spring, all summer, whatnot. And, you know, I know I was there at Husky Stadium to see what Michael Penix Jr. did to Oregon's defense late in that game. And it's why Oregon has got one blemish on its record. So, to me, all this talk all week long about what's USC going to do, how are they going to line up, How will the firing of Alex Grinch impact the game plan that USC puts together against Oregon? I think we're asking the wrong question. The question is, what's Oregon's defensive identity going to be? How will Tosh LePoy's defense scheme and play against Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley and that USC offensive attack? Because if Oregon can do that right and be better on defense than they were last season, certainly, and at different points earlier this season, Oregon's going to win this game, and it's going to win it going away. Because Oregon's offense with Bo Nix, they're not going to struggle. I don't care if you put, um, you know, 
the Vince Lombardi coaching the USC defense on Saturday. It's that that's not the question. The question is how will Oregon's defense react to Caleb Williams and the pressure that USC will put on it. So I am very curious to see how that plays out. So, you know, take your focus off USC's defense. The focus needs to be on Oregon's defense right now. It is the biggest factor in this game. Simultaneously, I look over at Oregon State. A very different question for Oregon State. And I hate to make Oregon State's season sound like it's more about, uh, you know, a, a sociological experiment. But at different points this year, I've just felt like Oregon State didn't come to play in a couple games or in a couple quarters or a couple of key moments. You know, look at the game, the first half or the first three quarters against Washington State. There were moments in the Arizona loss where they just lost focus. I saw it again in Boulder. I was there in person. I saw Oregon State lose focus in the fourth quarter. Like as much as Shador Sanders in Colorado want to say, hey, we found something. I think the, the 14 points that Colorado scored in the fourth quarter and all the yards that they piled up and all the pressure that they put on Oregon State, I think all of that had to do more with Oregon State losing focus, the attention deficit, I don't know what it is, and here comes Stanford, people calling it a trap game. Why? Because Washington is in a week, Oregon's in two weeks, there's a lot hanging in the balance in those two games, but you can't get there if you're Oregon State if you don't play well against Troy Taylor and Stanford. So yes, this is about psychology, it is a little sociology. Oregon State, you have to come to play. You need to play four great quarters in your home stadium where you are lethal against a Stanford team that has been much better this season, much better than advertised. So that's what it's about for Oregon State. I want to see them show up to play, and I want to see them play four complete quarters and set up a huge moment in a week against Washington and maybe a bigger moment against Oregon. Everybody talking about Caleb Williams. Everybody talking about USC. Everybody talking about uh, the defense at USC. Why, why isn't Oregon the focus of this, Stephen? Like, you know, I just went off in the last segment. Why isn't Oregon the focus of that, uh, of that conversation? Uh, maybe I, I think because of the, the hype coming into the season, USC was supposed to be good. And, uh, I, you know, I think you and me were probably a little lower on USC than a lot of people. But I don't think I wasn't expected to be 7-3 and three at this point. Like, I thought they'd be better than that. So I think it's... We like to uh, we like to talk about the disappointments rather than the than the successes. I think when I am uh, looking at the USC defense, I'm I'm a little curious to see you know will they be better? But I just don't think Bo Nix is going to allow that to matter. I think the bigger question is all that identity talk, all this talk we've had about Oregon being the most balanced team in the Pac-12. All of that conversation, is uh, is all that conversation real? Or is, uh, you know, is it is it not real? Or, you know, what do we make of Oregon as a defensive team trying to be, trying to basically say, hey, they are, uh, this team has an identity. Like, what do we make of that versus the USC Caleb Williams offensive attack? Flurb in Portland is called in. He wants to talk about Caleb Williams. Flurb, what's on your mind? Yeah, John, uh, Oregon's doing what they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're drilling the teams that they have to drill. I mean, look at their defense. Look at the single digit, couple of three, di- you know, single digit games that the defense or the offense has scored against them. Question on Caleb Williams: Three losses, USC. Mentally, 
you know, the Hollywood mentality, Southern California, they have, he has nothing to play for anymore. He's going pro. Do you think this is going to affect him tomorrow? And if Oregon gets out early, do you, do you really think he's going to be 100% going, come on, guys, let's win this thing? What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I wonder. And I wonder about the emotional scene that we saw a week ago. I said to Anna at the time, you know, she was asking me, like, gosh, she's taking such grief for being an emotional guy who was, you know, basically uh, climbing into the stands and having a good cry with his mom. And I said, to me, the emotional outpouring from Caleb Williams last Saturday in after their loss to Washington was rooted to some kind of finality. Like, you know, Caleb Williams coming to grips with the idea that his team wasn't going to make a college football playoff. Like, he came all the way to USC, all the hoopla about USC winning all those games, and USC's been good but not great, and USC didn't win the Pac-12 championship a year ago. Not going to win the Pac-12 championship this year. Not going to get to a playoff. And so it kind of I, – I said to Anna, I said, you know, he's thinking about – he's going to the NFL, and his biggest victory or his biggest accomplishment in uh, as a quarterback at USC is going to have been what? Uh, he played against Tulane in a Cotton Bowl? Like, that. that's not making it in Caleb Williams' eyes. And so I kind of do wonder – about the hangover from last week to this week for USC football and whether or not uh, this team will show up. I picked Oregon. We're going to talk about our picks later, but I'm going to tell you right now, I picked Oregon to win big and cover the the spread. I think Oregon's going to win this thing by three touchdowns or more. And I I think Caleb Williams and USC will score, but I am leaning towards looking at Caleb Williams and USC's offense and Oregon's defense that, you know, we believe – has new identity this season? Well, here's an opportunity to prove it at home. I think it's a great test. All right, let's play uh, some punch and audio. We got great sound today, and I want you here for it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Oh, Scoot Henderson got an ankle injury. Blazer fans... You know, you've been through this kind of stuff. Here's Shams uh, Sharnia talking about the ankle injury to Scoot. Punch it. Blazers prize rookie Scoot Henderson is expected to miss two more weeks with a bone bruise in his right ankle. Sources tell me Henderson has dealt with discomfort after spraining the ankle on November 1, the last time the number three overall pick played, and he will continue to rehab for a return. Continue to rehab. Blazer fans without Scoot Henderson. Uh, luckily, I think Scoot hasn't been one of the one of the big highlights for the Blazers this season. Still, when you're shorthanded, you're shorthanded. Not a good uh, development in Blazer world. Caitlin Clark, 44 points as number three Iowa beat number eight Virginia Tech. By the way, 44 points, eight rebounds, six assists for the reigning AP Player of the Year. Here's how it sounded, punch it. Their tests would be coming in league play and there's Clark again, one-handed right down the right side. Clark behind the back, into the lane, left-handed off glass for two more. Clark, step back, good. Money time. Money time. Uh, Look, if you're somebody who is 
sitting on tickets to the NCAA Women's Regional that will be held in Portland, the West Regional. Keep in mind, Caitlin Clark played in the West Region last year as Iowa rolled through Seattle and uh, got themselves into the Final Four. Caitlin Clark has not missed a step. Pete Carroll, Seahawks got smacked in Baltimore last week, 37-3. They get, uh, they'll get well this week. They got the Commanders. Pete Carroll, punch it. We didn't play very well in this last game, but we've been playing really well until that. And, and so uh, we got to get back on track and see, you know, I'll, I'll let you know after this game this weekend. Um, I'm not going to judge anything on, on what just happened. We're going to put that behind us and go. Just like always, you know, it's you can have a really good game, you can have a really bad game, and it's how you get back on track is what's important. And we've been working the discipline of that for a long time. We'll see how we handle it. The NFL is funny like that. You know, I don't, I don't think too much of one game anymore. You see one game. You even, you see great teams even have a game like that where they just don't have it. And so it, it's more. You need a bigger sample size, and I think that's what Pete Carroll's saying here. And the Commanders are the perfect team to get well against. You know, they're just inept enough on both sides of the ball. Pete Carroll, Seahawks, this is a good matchup and a good opportunity for them to get back on track. 49ers defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes will uh, move from the booth to the sideline. It's in his first season as the uh, 49ers uh, defensive coordinator. The Niners are coming off a bye week. They have the Jaguars on Sunday. Niners have lost three straight after a 5-0 and start. You talk about sample size. Here's Wilkes on moving from the booth to the sideline to call a game, punch it. I think it's more or less in the communication part that we can, you know, have that dialogue, um, direct face-to-face uh, -face and try to make the adjustment that we need to make throughout the game. The obvious is the obvious, you know, but, you know, dwelling on the past three weeks is not going to really change what we're trying to get done. And our focus has been since we've been back, it's like, you know, it, it's just, you know, one at a time. One at a time, but Wilkes hits on something. Like, look, if you have good eyes in the press box, you can be a D coordinator who's down on the sideline. But you need eyes up in the press box that you trust and that see the game the way you see it. Coaches talk about this stuff all the time. A lot of coordinators like to be on the sideline because they can talk to players. Other coordinators like to be in the boat booth because they can see what's happening on the field better. Um, you know, I, I think you can be on the sideline if you've got good eyes in the booth. Or you can be up in the booth if you got somebody on the sideline who can be that person to serve as the liaison between you as the coordinator and the players themselves. You just can't be in two places at once, and I think that's what he's talking about. Bill Belichick, classic Belichick here. They're in Frankfurt, Germany. Patriots against the Colts on Sunday. Punch it. Oh, all right. Good to be in Frankfurt. Um... You know, got in this morning, good flight in. Um, got in this morning, just kind of rolling along here, and, and um, beautiful facility. Um, so, look forward to getting out there this afternoon, wrapping up our preparations, and and uh, be ready to go on Sunday. Are we doing pretzels for lunch? Seriously. <laughs> Belichick, pretzels for lunch? Uh, a far cry. Uh, from uh, the Miami Dolphins coach who uh, basically started his news conference last week by speaking German. Kalen DeBoer talking about uh, facing Kyle Whittingham, Utah, in town in Seattle. 
Kayla Nabor facing Winningham for the first time. Number five, Washington, against number 18, Utah. Punch it. Uh, I have not. This is it. This is the first time. Um, and, uh, man, he's uh, just done a wonderful job there. Um, you know, two-time defending champs, but I think it just goes way beyond that. Uh, you know, building the program up to the point it is and the consistency. And we're excited about, you know, what we've done so far. Um, and we have aspirations and goals of doing big things. And um, we know that this is going to be a huge test for us that we got to be ready for. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that as a issue for Kalen DeBoer. Because Kyle Whittingham and his staff, they are tough. They're smart. Those players will be well coached. They are. They adjust better than other teams. There is a coaching dynamic when you play Utah that you have to account for. Now, Oregon made it not matter a couple of weeks ago in Salt Lake City because Oregon just ambushed Utah and turned that game into a blowout. But I'm curious to see if Kalen DeBoer underestimates Kyle Whittingham and the Utah coaching staff. It's not just that they're two-time defending conference champions. Did 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 he re- did he research how they did it? Like they came from nowhere to beat Oregon two years ago in the conference title game, and last year they needed like five different things to happen on the final weekend to get there, and then they got there as the two seed. And they knocked out Caleb Williams in USC after going down by multiple scores. It's a coaching staff that adjusts well, that tends to outcoach the opposition in the second half, and MacGyver's it like I've not seen any other coaching staff MacGyver it. So Caleb DeBoer better be ready, better be better be game on. Kirk Herbstreit uh, talking during Thursday Night Football about Bryce Young. Panthers and Bryce Young struggling. He likes Bryce Young. Punch just it. saying, if you put Bryce Young in a place like San Francisco, you guys would all be going, how about this Bryce Young guy? This guy's amazing. And I'm just saying, a quarterback is a product of the system that he plays in and the people that he has around him. It's as simple as that. And he doesn't ha- right now, they're in a transition mode where they're running an offense that was six offensive linemen inside zone, downhill, and now they're trying to take the, the personnel from that offense and become a college offense, spread, gun, tempo, playing space. So they're caught in between right now. They don't have the personnel to run the kind of offense they want to run that they're going to run eventually with Bryce Young. So I think, he, to me, you need to pump the brakes on giving up on Bryce Young or thinking he sucks. Yeah, I agree with that to an extent. I, I do think there are times when I look at him on the field and you just can't do things with Bryce Young that you can do with some other QBs. There was a moment where... The Panthers had a fourth down in inches, and they had to run Bryce Young outside the pocket and sprint him out. They couldn't quarterback sneak with him because he's not physically able to get in there and mix it up in a quarterback sneak situation. And he he looks short to me when he's on the field. He looks small, and there's just moments where I go, gosh, there's an issue there. But I think I think Herb Street's right about the larger picture. You know. Th- the Panthers are just very limited in what they can do. They they don't have a Debo Samuels. They don't have a George Kittle. You know, they don't have the ability to throw to a guy on a, you know, five-yard swing pass, a Christian McCaffrey, and have him take it to the house. They, they don't have that player. They gave that player up to go get Bryce Young in part. And so, you know, it, it puts it puts Bryce Young in a tough position because they are very much station to station. They're, you know... 
it, it felt to me there was a time in the fourth quarter where the Panthers were driving with the football, and I thought, gosh, they need all four downs to get 10 yards. You know, they can get 10 yards. They can get first downs. But they need four downs to get it. Like, it's, it's three downs is a little dicey to try to get 10 yards because they're just playing in, like, three- to five-yard increments at all times, and it's really difficult to watch. They, don't, they can't run the ball that well, and they have, a, they have a team of possession receivers. So I do think there's a personnel issue going there. But as we know, the NFL was not going to be forgiving. And, uh, and I think in the end, if he doesn't get this fixed and they don't get him some help, it's going to end up coming back on Bryce Young. Michael Wilbon. Talking about the Jim Harbaugh news, if you're just waking up from a coma, the Big Ten Conference has suspended Harbaugh for three games. He cannot coach. He will not be in the stadium or on the sideline on Saturday as Michigan faces Penn State. Michael Wilbon reacts. Punch it. This is going to drive Jim Harbaugh out of He's college football. He's suspended for six of the games this year. Uh, yes. But Michigan's still the, probably the best team in the Big Ten. And Michigan is the only chance that the Big Ten has of winning the college football playoff this year. So really, so the Big Ten is going to cut off its nose to spite its face here? I, I'm stunned at this. The amount of money that this could, could, could swing. The amount of money, the amount of embarrassment, um, it looks a lot like Jim Harbaugh is being picked on by the Big Ten Conference. I do think Michigan's done some wrong here. But I think the uh, bigger offense is that Jim Harbaugh and Michigan have probably annoyed a lot of opposition in the Big Ten. And keep in mind, Tony Petiti, the new commissioner for the Big Ten Conference, he's not like Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis coming into Major League Baseball to clean up baseball. He succeeded a commissioner in Kevin Warren in the Big Ten Conference who got his hand slapped and almost lost his job because of how he handled COVID. Big Ten Conference um, has a certain way that they want to do things. And Petiti was hired not by Michigan. He was hired by all of the presidents and chancellors in the Big Ten Conference. He's a very collegial guy. He's a lot like George Klyovkov in his style of management. And, you know, you thought you were hiring the right guy because, what, you don't have these big negotiations to do now if you're the Big Ten. You got your TV deal in place through 2037. You're kind of just, you know, you've added Oregon and Washington and USC and UCLA. You're ready to go to 20 teams. You're ready to, you know, kind of, you know, flex as a conference. And you just want a guy who's going to kind of kumbaya at the top of the conference. And and unfortunately, what Petiti's going to do is he's going to take a vote. And he's going to be like, all right, how many Big Ten presidents want Michigan to serve a suspension? And he's going to, and ultimately, they're, they're putting this on a sportsmanship clause which I said it at the beginning of the show, this is like getting Al Capone on tax evasion. Bigger offenses have happened at Michigan, but they want Michigan to pay the penalty here. Pivoting to the NBA where the Milwaukee Bucks are struggling a little bit. Damian Lillard didn't play last night, but the Milwaukee Bucks have not been good on defense. They are 25th in the NBA in defensive rating. They were fourth in the NBA in defensive rating last season. Brian Windhorst sees a problem. Punch this is another bad defensive performance from the Bucks, and this has now become a trend. This was an elite defensive team over the last few years. Last year, top four in the league in defense, which is why they had the number one overall seed last year. Their defense has collapsed. Collapsed. They're 25th now. That is not acceptable. 
for a team with this kind of defensive talent, not only has the trade of Drew Holiday hurt them and some new uh, you know, additions, some guys who maybe are not defensive first players, but with the coaching change, let's just be honest, they don't seem to have the same level of attention to detail and focus at the defensive end of the floor. Gee, I wonder. You get rid of Drew Holiday, who's a terrific defender. You replace, uh, you bring in Damian Lillard, who's not, not thinking defense when he when he puts on his sneakers, and you change your coaching staff out, and all of a sudden you can't play defense. Steven, what's happening in Milwaukee? Yeah, I mean, it, it's the perfect combination to be a bad defense. A new coach, uh, then you add Dame, who I mean, everyone wants to say that people change and people are going to change the game in the game no. basketball. It, it, that doesn't happen. Uh, when when you haven't played this way for you know 34 years of your life, you're not going to change now. So you know you look at Dame, he's not going to change, and he is what he is. He's a great offensive player. He's a poor defensive player, and the Bucks are going to have to figure something out because that defense isn't good enough to win the NBA championship, uh, and Dame's going to have to figure out something there. How big of a problem will it be if the Bucks struggle, do not get to the Eastern Conference Finals, and it, you know, how much of the blame will go on Damian Lillard? How much will it go on the coaching change? I think, I, I think it's going to go on Dame. I think I really do. I think it's going to go on Dame because if it's the defensive problem again, like it has been here in Portland, that's going to be the easiest thing to say is like, look, the Bucks were a good defense. You got rid of your best defender in Drew Holiday. You bring in Dame, who's not a good defender, and now you're not very good. Like, you know, you can change coaches and everything, but I think it's kind of beyond. It's going to be a blame on Damian Lillard. And I said this when the trade happened, John, like the the first round picks that the Blazers got from the Bucks could turn out to be well good because I don't know that Dame wants to finish this contract out in Milwaukee. But what stops him from saying I want to be traded to Miami in a year and then the Bucks really might just have to blow it up. So I'm not saying it's gonna happen and you know, there's still a lot of time left, but I think if you're a Blazers fan, that's kinda of what you're rooting for. And you know, get the best pick possible from the Bucks and I, I think there is a possibility that the Bucks defense could be that bad and then they could, you know, be a second round exit team. Yeah, I think, uh, meanwhile, Blazer fans, uh, Robert Williams the third out for the season. His knee surgery will keep him out. He's going to undergo a full knee surgery. He's going to be sidelined for the year. He was one of the trade pieces, I think, that a lot of people were looking at, hoping that the Blazers would, uh, you know, turn into something else. Um, big disappointment there with Robert Williams the third uh, being uh, out for the season. Uh, leave it here. Jace Coburn's coming up. Portland State with a Big win last night. College basketball, we got to talk it. Leave it here. Portland State starting off the season. Big road win. You see Santa Barbara. Vikings got it together. College basketball, man. I, I feel like there's a little more buzz this year. I don't know if it's just me. Maybe. I just feel like there's a little more buzz about Pac-12 basketball, college basketball in general. Uh, big win last night. Portland State's 2-0. Went on the road to UC Santa Barbara, knocked out the Gauchos, 82-76 was the final. Uh, Vikings coach Chase Coburn here to talk about it. How you doing, coach? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How did it feel? How did it feel to do that? Uh, man, it was great. You know, it, it was a hostile environment last night, and, uh, you know, the, that place was packed. And, and uh, to be able to beat a team that was in the NCAA tournament last year and and uh, supposed to win their conference was a was a great accomplishment for us last night. So uh, we're happy. We know we got more work to do, but uh, to be able to get out to this 2-0 start is great. Yeah, you guys, uh, obviously a trip and a, a road win like that is a big deal and certainly helps your confidence. How different is this team this year? Help us get to know your team a little bit. You know, our team is, I, I feel like, uh, 
we have a lot of uh, returning guys, but, um, you know, we've got really good people that I, I feel like members of our community can uh, relate to. Um, for instance, like, you know, one of my, one of my good friends texted me last night and said, uh, he has two different favorite players on our team. His wife has two different favorite players on the team and his son and his daughter. And between the four of them, they got eight different favorite players. And, um, so, you know, we're, we're a group of guys that I think a lot of people can relate to. Um, you know, so it's, it's going to be an exciting year. I, uh, love that you got some great bench performance. Isaiah Johnson came off the bench, gave you 12 points, eight rebounds. What does that do for you in a game like that? Yeah. I mean, our bench guys have been great. We've been uh, rotating some starters through there and Isaiah Johnson's gotten out to a really good start um, here in the first two games. And, and, uh, you know, we're going to play a lot of guys. I think the first night at Air Force, we played 12 and then last night we played 11, and, and uh, our guys are really buying into the team concept, going back to I think that people can really relate to this team because um, they're not a selfish group at all. Um, you know, they, they definitely put the team first in every way. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been exciting to be able to play that many guys and have that many people involved. And we, we aren't going to be a team that's going to play five guys 35 to 38 minutes. That's just not us and our, not our identity. And we're going to play a heck of a lot harder than uh, than that to be able to try and play five guys for 35 minutes. So um, they all understand and know their roles, and, and they've really stepped up here early. Give me an idea at this point of the season. I think you know you're seeing coaches try to figure out rotations, try to find combinations. Um, you know, what are you trying to get out of these early games aside from wins? I think for us, I think one advantage we have is we have nine guys back from last season which, um, you know, I take a lot of pride in, especially this day, day and age in college basketball where, um, you know, people are having to bring – or coaches are having to bring in almost a whole new roster every year. Um, we have nine guys that, that uh, wanted to come back and believed in our culture um, and the things that we're doing. They love being part of Portland State University, a part of the basketball program, a part of the athletic program and uh, enjoy playing with each other. So we've got an advantage there, um, you know, and it's just been acclimating the, the uh, four new guys that we have and, and uh, building on everything that, that we've done over the last two years. Um, so I think for, for that, like, I, I, I'd say it's, it's just continued to build on uh, what, we've, what we've been doing. Chase Coburn, our guest, Portland State coach. Um, look, we're watching all these changes in football that are happening with realignment, NIL, all that stuff. Like, how much of your time as a coach is spent, you know, actually getting to coach versus the the new stuff and talking NIL or trying to strategize with how a Big Sky Conference team can get involved in any of that space? You know, for us, I mean, thankfully I have a great staff um, that handles a lot of the uh, outside stuff for me to allow me to be able to coach basketball. Um, you know, we, we've, we've got a tremendous staff of assistant coaches and, and um, you know, support staff that, that do a really good job. So uh, that allows me to just focus on what what I need to do when, when it comes to recruiting or coaching or scouting or whatever it might be. So, um, you know, we, we just try and narrow our focus a lot of the time and, and uh, focus on the specific guys that we're looking at recruiting and, and uh, attack things that way. For people who want to see you guys, you're playing Sunday against Linfield. You're back home now, and you know you really won't get into kind of the uh, the meat of things for a little bit here. Although you know you you got a game with Cal Poly 
in uh, California, CSU Baptist coming up. But, uh, you know, tell me about right now versus when you get into the meat of your schedule, what do you need to figure out as a coach? You know, that's an interesting question. I I think, uh, you know, we've been able to get out to this fast start and been able to figure a couple things out really quickly. Um, you know, and, it, and it's just, I think it's just going to continue to be, um, you know, identifying roles for people. And because one thing as a coach that I, I've learned is that I, I want everybody to feel involved um, and a part of a, the team's success, um, you know, and have some ownership with that. Um, so it's just going to be continuing to, um, you know, figure out everybody's roles and, and uh, you know, in our identity, which I feel like, you know, has carried over from last year. I mean, we know we're going to be a tough physical team um, that's going to play hard. There was one play last night where there was a loose ball, and we had four guys dive on it. Um, you know, so that's that, I was, that was a really proud moment for me last night as a coach, seeing four guys dive on a ball and be so passionate and spirited um, about it. So, you know, we'll continue to move in that way. Give me an idea, you know, you you practice with these guys and you know them and then you start the season at Air Force and then at Santa Barbara and you're 2 and 0. Did you see 2 and 0 coming or is there a little bit of hey, I don't know what we're going to be until I can see it when we get onto the court? No, I I, I actually saw it coming. Um, you know, I, I again, going back to our staff. I, our staff has put in a lot of work with our players and I've seen a lot of improvement. Uh, individually from our players and uh, you know I like our team is very connected um, you know I, I told the told the guys this last night I stole a uh, quote from Tori Lavello the Diamondbacks manager uh, connected team is a very dangerous team and so we've been talking about that ever since I heard him say that and uh, you know I like our guys they hang out off the floor they go to dinner together um, you know, every meal, they all turn in their phones, and we, we don't have to say anything. They do it on their own. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really exciting group to be around. And, and uh, you know, we'll just continue taking one day at a time and keep moving forward. And, um, but we've been practicing well. You know, we've, we've had some really good practices and, and competitive because we've got a lot of depth. And, and uh, so everybody's got to be on their toes every single day. Yeah, depth, a good, good issue to have. Uh, that game was neck and neck until – maybe early in the second half, and you guys kind of got a little bit of separation. And then I was really impressed that you just kind of held it. You know, they made a little run late, but you just kind of held that lead. And it it felt like, you know, that's a marker of a veteran team, is it not? Yeah, for sure. You know, and that's that's one thing, you know, uh, we've been talking about too, is that we are an older team. Um, You know, we've got a lot of experience, but – you know that that doesn't really mean anything until you get in that situation and you show your experience. And last night they totally did. Santa Barbara went on a run, and we were able to sustain it and didn't break. And uh, you know, because basketball is a game of runs, and people are going to go on runs. But um, our guys, the experience came out last night, um, which was really exciting to see. You forced 18 turnovers. Is that you guys, or was Santa Barbara sloppy? Uh, you know, I I think that's part of our identity, right? Um, we're going to be scrappy, we're going to be tough, and we're going to get after it. Um, you know, we're going to play passionate, we're going to play spirited, and uh, like I said, we're going to dive on the floor, we're going to take charges. I think we tried to take probably like five or six charges last night. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, we're part of our deal is, is we're going to try and create turnovers and, and, and play hard and be active and be everywhere. Again, I, I, I think that not only can people relate to our players, but they can also relate to our style because we're, we're just a tough, blue-collar team 
um, you know, that's going to work hard. Big Sky Conference, give us an idea of the strength of this conference. I'm kind of looking around. It's hard to tell this early. Northern Colorado's 2-0. and You guys are undefeated. You got, you know, obviously the Montana schools. You'll think about them when you do. But, you know, who do you have circled right now on the calendar or the schedule? Or, or how, what do you make of the conference strength as a whole? I mean, our conference is very, very good. Um, last year it was it was really competitive, and there was a lot of really good teams, and it's the same way this year too. I mean, you know, honestly, like early in, in uh, non-conference play, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes because just of the variety of opponents that everybody's playing. Um, but, you know, we know when, once conference play starts, it's, it's going to be knocked down, drag out, and, and uh, you know, there's some really good coaches in the league and there's some really good talent. Um, you know, and then of course it's it's hard to travel and win on the road. So uh, it'll be a very interesting conference season, and we're excited for it, though. Eastern Washington, Montana State uh, finished, uh, you know, uh, at the top of the conference last year. Portland State looking to make a dent in that. All right, I really hey, congrats to you, Jace. I wanted to bring you on, take a victory lap. I know you guys you know, probably enjoyed <laughs> the trip back, but you know, how soon do you tell the guys, hey, the moment was nice, but you know, it's time to get back to work. Uh, we we always uh, will feel the emotion of a win or a loss that night, but the next day when we wake up, it's over. Um, you know, we move on. So, uh, you know, we know we got a game Sunday at home, our home opener against Linfield. And so when we woke up this morning, even though uh, it was a great win last night, we knew we needed it was time to turn the page. So um, we're focused on Linfield for Sunday, and, and uh, we know they just played Oregon State, and, and uh, it'll be a good game. So, uh, you know, we'd really appreciate everybody's support. We know and understand that that we need to win games to get people to come out and play a certain way and, and uh, be really good people, and and uh, hopefully the city can get behind us and support us, and, and uh, we'll get this thing rolling. Yeah, you got Linfield on Sunday at the Viking Pavilion, 2 o'clock tip on Sunday. Uh, before I let you go, your president, the Portland State president, Ann Cud, did the video with the football team. She seems to get it, Coach. I mean, like, she seems to understand sports. And I think the whole athletic department's got to be a little bit excited about what that, that could be. No no doubt. There's definitely a pep in everybody's step, and, and uh, we're all really excited for her to be here. And, yeah, that video was awesome. Um, you know, so it was it was great to see and great to know that, you know, that we have support behind us through, you know, our president and, uh, you know, our athletic director, John Johnson, and it just goes on and on and on um, about the support that we have at Portland State, and and uh, we're excited to get everything rolling. You got K.J. Allen from Last Chance U on the roster. I know Anna and I watched that show, and she's fascinated by what happened to all the players, and you know, is KJ like? Do we need some cameras? Do we need to do a documentary? Get him fired up. <laughs> I, I mean, he's a man child. I know that when that when that ball goes up, that dude's a man child. So he's uh, he's a great person. He's really fun to be around. Um, he's got a great smile. I, he's really happy here. I'm not trying to speak for him, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I could just tell he's really happy here, and uh, we're really happy to have him. And he's a great teammate. Uh, the guys laugh because they all think he's the most famous guy that we've ever had. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, he's he's awesome. I mean, and you know, and to be honest, like he's very very humble. Um, you know, and with oh, I don't know all his Instagram followers or whatever. I mean, you know, a guy like that could could have an ego, but the dude is really humble, and uh, I've enjoyed coaching him every single day. Well, you guys going to be a lot of fun. I look forward to seeing what you do with the season. Uh, Jace Coburn, Portland State coach. Thank you. 
Appreciate you. Thank you. All right, there they go. 2-0. and Lightning in a bottle. Do we need to have him on after every win? Just keep the streak, keep the karma? Do we need to do that? Um, well, if we do, we'll have, if we have to do it, we'll do it. All right, uh, Stephen and I, coming up, we're going to talk about uh, the uh, Pac-12 weekend and the NFL weekend. Where's the action this weekend? The 5 at 5 is still ahead. We'll lock in our picks in the 5 o'clock hour for the Pac-12 games as well. Leave it here. Sometimes I think there's uh, there's a thing as being too smart for your own good. I read a story today about a Stanford University uh, neurobiologist uh, who has uh, studied the human brain and primates, and he's done this for like 40 years, and he, he came to the conclusion that he believes that virtually all human behavior is beyond your conscious control. Meaning, like, you don't say to yourself, Stephen, you don't say to your heart, beat, beat, beat. You don't say that, right? Like, you don't do that, do you? No, I don't. Not that I know of. All right, but this guy's whole thing is, like, he's at Stanford. I don't know why I find this to be such a waste. (laughs) Because he's at Stanford. He's obviously blessed as a uh, neuroscientist with a uh, big, healthy brain. And I can think of a variety of things that I would want him to dive into. You know, how about fourth down tendencies and head coaches and impulse control in the heat of the game? Like, can we pr- uh, successfully predict how Jonathan Smith or Dan Lanning might react in a fourth and one situation late in a game by watching them play blackjack in the off season? Like, somebody get a neuroscientist on that thing, all right? I, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm sitting forward in my seat on that one. But this guy's whole study is like, hey, to me, where it goes too far is it kind of absolves everybody of doing, like, if you did something wrong in your life, you go, oh, it's just out of my conscious control. You know, I was driving drunk. I couldn't help it. You know, like, I uh, veered out of my lane and ran over a cyclist. I couldn't help it. Um, I think I believe in free will. Do you not, like, you know, don't some degree of free will, you know? It's it's just interesting. I, I read this story, and I don't know. At the end of it, I thought, gosh, man, got really smart guy. And he's really saying that, like, uh, he's written a book about it, by the way. So he's really saying that there's a lot out of our control, which just to me feels like, eh, I'm going to give everybody a pass. On that note, um, what's not out of your control is that these Pac-12 games and these NFL games will kick off this weekend. I want to look at this, Stephen. Uh, where will your eyes be? Let's start with Saturday in college football. Because I, I, I'm I, going to talk about this maybe a little bit later. I'll go dive, you know, dive deeper into Michigan and Jim Harbaugh and whatnot. But i got to see how Michigan shows up to play against Penn State. i got to see how Oregon shows up against USC. And I need to know that Oregon State's going to show up. And Washington, Utah, my eyes will be there as well. Where will your eyes be on Saturday? Yeah, I agree with you. The Penn State-Michigan game is fascinating. The Harwa thing adds a whole new wrinkle to it. So I do want to check that out. And luckily it's early. It's the 9 o'clock kickoff, so uh, you'll know to watch that. But in, in the Pac-12, it's the USC-Oregon game, John. I think I think nobody is picking USC. And I understand why they're not picking them, but they're not even picking them to come close. And I think that might be a mistake. I think this game is going to be a little bit closer than what you know what we're all thinking is going to be. Contrarian. Contrarian. I'm and I love it. I love I you know th- I love being on that island. I love being on the island of uh, I'm the only one thinking that way. So um, you know I, I just I 
the Oregon defense has been good. But have they really been tested in the secondary? I don't think that they have. The one game that they were tested was against Washington. They were fine, but they weren't great in that game. I think Caleb Williams is going to test that secondary a little bit. In Oregon, they're going to have to pass that test. And, you know, it's going to be by far uh, the toughest game since that Washington game. You know, that's really only the game you can compare it to offensively. So we'll see how that Oregon defense really steps up uh, on Saturday. So I'm really, I'm really intrigued to see how that defense holds up because, it's, you know, this is the thing. You know, Lanning's a defensive guy. It was bad last season. Oregon wants to take that next step to the college football playoff. They have to be elite on defense, and they've been elite so far. But the one test they had, they lost that game. Can they uh, play better against the USC team that will throw the ball down the field? Going to Sunday, the Niners in Jacksonville. I need to know if the Niners can get right. They'll play there. It's an early game, 10 a.m. game on the West Coast. The Niners, who've lost three straight, go to Jacksonville. That's a 6-2 and two Jacksonville team. I've been surprised that the Niners... You know, haven't looked great on offense, but they haven't looked good on defense in in a couple of weeks. So I'm my eyes are on that game, that Jacksonville game. Beyond that, um, you know, there's a little bit of a uh, some curiosity that I have with Cleveland and Baltimore. That's a sneaky good game. Baltimore's been really good. Can Cleveland, who has a really good pass rush, can they give uh, can they give them problems there? And then. The Sunday night game. I mean, the Jets are going to Vegas. Can the can the Raiders keep this going? Uh, that's where my eyes will be. How about you? Uh, yeah, th- those games. But I also am intrigued by the Texans Bengals game. Bengals have been playing really well. Joe Burrow seems to be 100 percent healthy. Uh, but the Houston Texans CJ Stroud. I don't know if you saw what he did last week, John. You know, 400 plus yards, the most passing yards ever in a single game for a rookie last week. You know, 460, I believe, somewhere around there. Five touchdowns, no picks. CJ Stroud looks like the real deal go against the Bengals team who is definitely on a roll. And then the Monday night game, the Broncos taking on the Bills. I mean, the Bills have been really bad, and the Broncos are coming off the win against the Chiefs, had a bye week. I kind of think the Broncos might be sneaky good the second half of the season. Maybe I'm crazy on this one. Maybe I'm taking crazy pills. But I can see the Broncos winning this game. I, I just, I'm not buying into Buffalo this season. They've been really yeah, bad. bad. And I think offensively, Buffalo's not very good. Defensively, Denver's pretty solid. Russell Wilson's been okay. I think the Broncos might be in for a little run here in the second half, and I think it might start on Monday night. Uh-oh. You're making a prediction. Yeah. I'm there it is. That, take that's, the where, that's where our eyes will be on the weekend. The 5 at 5 is coming up top of the hour. I do a lot of reading. I also read a uh, story, by the way, not just the neuroscientist guy, but read a story about AI. Do you know what singularity is? Have you heard of this concept, singularity? No. Okay, it's the moment where AI is no longer under human control, where it basically goes on its own. Scary. Scary stuff. That, it's like every scary movie involving AI has singularity <laughs> at the core of it. I, I didn't know what singularity was either until I read that story today. But, uh, but um, everybody is in this race to speed up and grow AI. So I read this story today saying that... Um, that moment where AI is no longer under human control, they now predict that it's less than a decade away. They're saying 2031, maybe even sooner. And then the story was like, are you ready? And I was like, to what? End up in a zoo when AI takes over and they put humans in a in a zoo somewhere? They go, this is what humans were like when they used to roam and dominate the earth. I don't know. It's kind of a scary concept. Does, does it freak you out at all a little bit? I mean, I try, no, because I try not to think about it. Like, I'm just, again, I'm just going to give in. If it happens, it happens. What am I going to do? I can't fight these robots. I can't fight AI. They're going to beat me up and, you know, put me in in a cage. So um, I I, I kind of into the fact that, like, 
AI and technology, there's still so much untapped potential that we haven't done with, like, you know, done with it yet. Like, it can be crazy, and it could be world-changing. We're so far away from what it actually could do. It is a little frightening when you think about it. You go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I, I am uh, I am reading all of this stuff. That's, that tells you how I am consumed with uh, AI and, and neuroscience and other things. All right, coming up, we have the 5 at 5 at the top of the hour. Stephen's going to prepare the five biggest stories that are going on in sports. Um, if you are just tuning in and you're just waking up from a coma, Jim Harbaugh, has been sanctioned. Michigan's been sanctioned, I guess, by the Big Ten Conference, causing a lot of controversy and a lot of uh, discussion in college athletics about the reach of the Big Ten. What are they doing? Are they overstepping? What is Tony Petiti, the commissioner of the Big Ten, doing as the Big Ten Conference has sanctioned Michigan and Jim Harbaugh suspended for uh, three games? He will not be allowed to be on the sideline for the remainder of the regular season during games. He can coach his team when he's not on the sideline. It's a ridiculous kind of thing. Either he's coaching or he's not, or he's loud and he's not allowed. Like you, This is a really weird decision by the Big Ten Conference. They're claiming that it's a violation. They're citing a violation of the sportsmanship um, segment of their bylaws saying that uh, what Michigan has done is violated sportsmanship. Now, they have to feel like they're on pretty solid ground to do that, but I fully expect that there's going to be some kind of temporary restraining order uh, that will be issued in the 11th hour. And I love how they did it. You know, see what they did there? They waited on the East Coast till it was like, you know, almost quitting time on the East Coast on a holiday weekend. Like, Michigan couldn't scramble and get into a court, get a judge to issue a restraining order or an injunction. And so uh, it appears as though tomorrow Michigan will be without Jim Harbaugh on the sideline for the game at Penn State. It's almost, almost like a movie. And uh, so as you uh, go into your weekend, think about what Michigan will do. Now, what happens if Michigan loses and then later it's determined that the Big Ten was operating outside the bounds of its authority? Uh, or if does Michigan pull together and rally and just go on a torrential win streak? I don't know. But it's like, uh, I'm going to tune in. Steven has prepared the 5 and 5. 5 at 5. 5 and 5. 5 at 5. It's Friday. It's Friday. It's 5 o'clock. A lot of you, it's quitting time. We're just getting started here. It's the happy hour. We're happy to be with you. <laughs> on Mondays, people, I run into people and they go, Anna, how was your, uh, how was your weekend? Do you have a restful weekend? And I'll be like, eh, I worked all weekend. I love it, though. I love that my job entails nights and weekends. College football stadiums, games. I'll be honest with you. Don't tell anybody this. But it it's way better than digging ditches, holding a jackhammer. Like, I look at elementary school teachers all week long. Bless you. You are educating our children. You are pouring your love and your knowledge and your wisdom into the children of America. I don't know if I could do it. I'm not built for it. My uh, seven-year-old can attest to that as I uh, disciplined her by saying I'm very disappointed in you and just walked away. <laughs> That's how I roll. Uh... 
kids going on field trips nowadays, I think. Field trips are back. Is this the thing? Like, field trips are back in? Like, I know in 2009, in the state of Oregon, when the state legislature came in and said, hey, we need to cut funding, co-curricular activities were cutting, field trips were the first thing to go. It, it, and then the pandemic really kind of, I think, did in field trips altogether if, if you were going on field trips. But um, my uh, seven-year-old and uh, nine-year-old both have gone on field trips in the last two weeks, and I'm like, what is going on here? Field trips are back. This is a good thing. If you want to send more kids on field trips, next Wednesday is going to be a big day. And uh, next Wednesday we are uh, doing the uh, BFT Foundation's annual auction and annual fundraiser. You'll hear a little bit of it on this radio show. A lot of it will be online. I'll give you more details as it approaches. But uh, people every year love to bid on great auction items, including... Uh, trailblazers seats, courtside seats, uh, VIP packages where you could throw out the first pitch at a Hillsborough Hops game. All of that is coming up next week. You'll hear some of it on Wednesday's show, and uh, it'll be exciting to kind of share that with you. But uh, the proceeds from that uh, go to the BFT Foundation. It helps all of those co-curricular activities like field trips and sporting events and club sports and drama programs and theaters and summer camps and uh, you know, kids just having fun and smiling. That's what I say. Uh, Steven, you ready? You got your 5 at 5 all uh, all ready to go? You got it all massaged up and hydrated? Yeah, took me a bit, but yeah, I'm ready to go now. I, I, you know, I was too much preparation. Too, is there such a thing? Can you be over-prepped oh, 100%, for this segment? Yeah. For this segment, yeah. For 5 at 5, there's a definitely an over-preparation thing. It's a fine line. I, I know what Anna goes through now. I th- I think uh, I think uh, you have no idea what she goes through. I I think you because uh, she's dealing with me uh, while she's trying to do it, and then she brings her five and five into the studio, and I go, eh, I don't like that one. Um, no, I uh, I think it's interesting that you bring up preparation because I agree with that. I agree that you can over prepare for a test, you can over prepare for a radio show, and I think a team and a coach can over prepare for a football game. I think too much is bad. You have to have just the right mix, just the right balance, just the right approach. Let's see how Steven did. The five at five. The five at five. He's been busy all day with this. Number one. Now I decided not to overthink this one. Uh, Jim Harbaugh, John, he has been suspended for the final three games of just being on the field by the Big Ten. Now he can coach during the week but he will not be allowed to coach on the sidelines for the final three games. Those three games at Penn State this week, then they're at Maryland, and of course they wrap up their season in the big game against Ohio State. Uh, Michigan was found to be in violation of the Big Ten sportsmanship policy for conducting an impermissible in-person scouting operation over multiple years, resulting in an unfair competitive advantage that compromised the integrity of the competition. A lot of words there, uh, but to me it just seems like they just don't like Jim Harbaugh and they're making him pay for it. Look, if Michigan's guilty of anything, it's guilty of playing a crummy schedule. Michigan this year has the softest strength of schedule of the unbeaten teams that are left in the college football playoff rankings. And in fact, within their own conference, Michigan has played opponents that have a combined record of 12-24. and 24. That's why this game at Penn State, Penn State's 5-2 and two in conference play. This game at Penn State's interesting because Penn State presents a credible opponent and a credible threat at a time in which Michigan is also being sanctioned. 
Really curious to see how that unfolds at Penn State, by the way. Moving on. Number two. University of Arizona, they are facing a financial crisis that could lead to sports programs being eliminated at the school. Robert Robbins, the school president, he disclosed the news of potential layoffs and other cost-cutting measures amid a $240 million financial shortage at a monthly faculty senate meeting on Monday. The athletic department for Arizona, approximately $100 million. Out of that $100 million, $40 million comes from the Pac-12, $30 million comes from ticket sales. Of course, football, basketball, like most of the schools in D1, are the primary revenue drivers for those ticket sales. The final $30 million comes from philanthropy and contracts, according to Robbins. Arizona right now, they currently have 23 varsity teams. Uh, but as we all know, they are set to join the Big 12 next season. Schools in that league have an average of 17 varsity leagues. So it seems like uh, they may be cutting some of those sports in the athletics department. is a real strong possibility for next season. Yeah, really uh, interesting to see this unfolding as Arizona. Like, how do you end up in that position if you're Robert Robbins, the Arizona president? Oh, I know, because the presidents and chancellors at these schools are idiots. They're not uh, financially, they're not financial experts. They aren't used to balancing budgets. They're, you know, they're professors. They're provosts who have been promoted to presidents. Uh, Arizona's in real trouble here, and, you know, uh, thankfully that will not fall on the Pac-12 conference. Moving on. Number three. I was waiting for it. Thank you. Uh, Yesterday I said the Blazers were cursed with injuries, and I think I am uh, deemed correct now. As uh, Robert Williams officially announced to be out for the season with the knee surgery, the Blazers announced that. Now, according to Sham Sharania, Number three overall pick, Scoot Henderson, the point guard. He's expected to be out for two weeks Wow! with a bone bruise at his ankle. Uh, Blazers, they will be uh, – they're still out of action until Sunday when they're down in L.A. taking on the Lakers. But now it's Robert Williams, Malcolm Brogdon, Scoot Henderson, Anthony Simons all on the injury list, and we're not even 10 games into the season. John, I think I was right. The Blazers are cursed. Are they tanking? I mean, it, you know, maybe they're tanking too. I think this is a good tanking strategy. Three and five. Hey, hey just take a sur- <laughs> take a surgery if you need it. You know, take a couple weeks off if you need it. I mean, because I, I'll say this: I had heard that uh, the Scoot Henderson injury, when he hurt his ankle, he was he was walking out of the building with no crutches, no nothing. The day it happened. Now he's out for two more weeks. Maybe something else happened. I don't know, but that's just kind of what I heard. Seems a little weird. Um, not saying the Blazers are up to some shady things. I hope not, but it just sucks because Scoot, you know, Scoot's a fun guy, fun guy to watch. He, he struggled the first couple of games of the season. I want to see how he progresses, but uh, you know, Blazers not playing terrible right now. So it would have been nice to see him, but he will be out about two weeks, probably. I would guess even more, just because that's kind of how it works for the Blazers. Blazers should put that on the grain silo. Not playing terrible right now. Three and put five. It up, put it up in the rafters. Buy tickets at Trailblazers.com. Number four. So last night, the Atlanta Hawks, they played the Orlando Magic. Atlanta beat the Magic 129-119, but that game was in Mexico City, which was the NBA's 32nd game in Mexico City since 1992. Adam Silver said that the chances are very high that they'll be back there next year, and they bet the, about the potential of Mexico seeing more NBA games. Silver said he doesn't know yet whether it'll be one or two games just because of the scheduling, it's very difficult to do. They don't want to have back-to-backs in those situations. They want to give the teams enough time. Uh, but the league will also have another international regular season game in Paris this year between the Nets and the Cavs on January 11th. 
That will be the second consecutive year a game in France will happen. Um, Adam Silver says he has uh, he mentioned the NBA, the league's interest in having an NBA franchise based in Mexico coming up at some point. Hopefully, he would love to have that. And right now, Mexico City is home to a G League team, which is the first NBA affiliate team based in Latin America. So it seems like the NBA wants to go more global, kind of like the NFL is doing right now. Yeah, they know they're the is the pond fished out in uh, the United States. Too much competition. Looking for new eyeballs, new revenue streams, new merchandise, new games, new opportunities overseas, where uh, the NBA seems to resonate. Uh, it makes sense to me. I think it's interesting. Number five. So Aaron Rodgers, he is never not one for controversy. On uh, Monday night, he, there was a video showing Aaron Rodgers dapping up one of his friends. He turned around, it. picked up a box, and a glass bottle sort of thing fell out of it. And it led to a lot of speculation on the internet that it was a bong, in fact, that fell out of the box. And Aaron <laughs> Rodgers was just walking around with a bong. Uh, Rodgers was asked about it on the Pat McAfee show today as you know he gets paid to go on that show. He said the record state it was not a bong. It was, in fact, uh, a high-class bottle of tequila from one of his other friends uh but he said you know shout out to bongs everywhere but that was not one of them so we can uh say that for sure aaron Rodgers was not you know ripping the bong on yeah. the sideline of the monday night game for the jets it did look like a fancy bottle kind of with one of those cork top fancy decanter type type thing it looked it was kind of shaped like a uh like a like beaker a yeah, it was just a weird shape to the bottle, and I thought he has a potion. That's what I thought. Oh, he's a wizard. Yeah, Rogers went on to say he he was mad that the internet didn't come up with something more clever than just a bomb. He wanted you know some type of potion or something that you know that's helping his Achilles get better. That's number five. We're done with that. Good job. You know, I I felt like you were asked, I reached to go to number six. Nothing there. Nothing. Should we do the ten? Ten at five. Uh, no, 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 thank you. I, uh, I think it's interesting. Here. Here's a story. It, it was what we should do at the end of it. I should say, all right, why didn't you put this in? But here's a story. The college football playoff leaders met today. The playoff uh, executive committee met, and they established a new policy. It requires a conference to have eight members for its champion to be eligible for an automatic qualifying spot in the 12-team playoff. You know who this is aimed at? You got to have eight members for the champion to be eligible as an automatic qualifier. Um, it makes the champion of a two-team pack two ineligible for the automatic qualifying spots. Do you think this causes the pack two to accelerate its timeline and add six teams to try to get to eight in time for the 2024 season? Or do they go, we're okay not having an automatic qualifying spot. We are going to uh, cruise along here, and our conference champion, like, you know, Oregon State, let's just say it was the Pac-2 this year, Oregon State would be in prime position to get an at-large berth into the 12-team playoff, given that Oregon State is sitting in uh, the number 12 position in the rankings. Although they wouldn't have won the Pac-2. They lost to Washington State earlier in the year, John. Is that, would that be the no. tiebreaker? There would be multiple Pac-2 two games. They might play a home-and-home. Home, I, sure, I, I surely hope that the Pac-2 Pac is not just waiting on their hands and uh, going to wait to make for the decision. If they didn't learn anything from the whole Pac-12 situation, 
don't be reactive. Be aggressive. Be proactive. Figure it out. Go out and get teams. Guess what? They're trying to pass this rule because they don't want you a part of it. They want to kick you out. They want to get you away. Don't let them do that. Be aggressive. Be proactive. Try to get teams in the Pac-12. Make it back to 10 again. I mean, it's just... I hate the fact that they're even talking about it. Like, let's just sit back and relax and figure it out. No, this is what happened, and you lost all the teams. Like, go, go after and get it. Michigan has been doing some saber-rattling in the wake of today's punishment, basically posturing like they might leave the Big Ten Conference. They could go independent. I tweeted out, hey, Michigan to the Pac-2, discuss this. Like, let's get this conversation going. But, you know, I, I think what the bigger thing is, like, I, I think it's a lot of posturing by Michigan. But is it possible that the splitting away of football from the NCAA is born from this Jim Harbaugh scandal? Michigan says, we're going to go do our own thing. Like We're leaving the mainstream Big Ten Conference. We'll sell our own media rights. We're out of here. We're not beholden to the Big Ten. It's nonsense. I mean... How far away would like Miami and Florida State and some of the programs in the ACC be from saying, you know what, Clemson, hey, uh, we're getting underpaid. We'll join you, Michigan. And all of a sudden, you got a super conference that starts to form that is outside the purview of the NCAA. I'm just spitballing here. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's that far away, and it seems like it might make a little little bit of financial sense for some of these schools, right? I think you know, you look at some of these programs that could go independent like that and actually make money, why would they not want to join up together and make the most money possible and be the most powerful conference out of everybody? Because there's still teams in the Big Ten that you could say, well, why are they in the Big Ten? You know, Rutgers, Maryland. Like, yes. There's a lot of teams that, if you're Michigan, you're looking at and you're like, why are we sharing profits with this team? Let's go at least share profits with other schools that are really good. We can get even more money. So I don't think that's far-fetched at all, John. Andy Staples uh, tweeting out, look, do you really think a Super League starts with kicking out Indiana and Vanderbilt? More likely it starts with a mega brand deciding to do its own thing. Like that that's Michigan. I don't think it happens, but um Michigan holds I think Michigan does hold some cards here in this conversation. I think they're you know, I think the Big Ten is gonna I think ultimately it's gonna be proven that the Big Ten overstepped with the punishment for Jim Harbaugh in the in the you know, in, in this case. I, I just don't know what the Big Ten Conference was thinking. And, by the way, good for television. I mean, do you th- what do you think the ratings are going to be for this game between Penn State and Michigan tomorrow? Like, this is going to be lights out, man. Huge. I mean, think about, like, you know, when Colorado was played early in the season, everyone wanted to watch it. Like, if you're a college football fan, why are you not wanting to watch this Michigan game just to see what happens? Like, it's at the Fox. It's great. I mean, Fox lucking out once again. I know I'm going to be tuned in. It's, it's going to be fascinating to see how they react without Harbaugh on the field. Or is he going to sneak out there? I don't know. Clear winner in this Michigan battle with the Big Ten is Fox as Fox will get this Penn State, one-loss Penn State at home against undefeated Michigan, and everybody going, how is this going to look? No Jim Harbaugh on the sideline for the Wolverines in this game. All right, coming up, Stephen and I are going to take a deep dive on the Pac-12 games for the weekend. We're going to lock in our picks for the weekend and uh, much more. I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Next Tuesday, a big day in uh, Whitman County Superior Court, Colfax, Washington. Judge uh, Gary Leiby will be presiding over the Pac-2 versus the 10 departing schools. We'll have all that drama locked down next week on the show. 
got an attorney coming on the show to kind of tell us uh, what we need to be paying attention to and not paying attention to, pouring through the documents, the discovery. I found uh, several of my exchanges with George Klyovkov, was part of the discovery that came out. So Klyovkov is explaining to me the uh, makeup of the conference and the money that's left in the conference, all that stuff I was reporting on months and months ago has come up as part of the discovery. I had a couple people tell me, hey, you made it. You made it into there. I was like, I'm not exactly making it. Um, all of that next week, next Tuesday, is the big day for that. we got some college football coming up this weekend that is going to be important. It's going to be big. Obviously, um, I would like to go in inverse order here, Stephen. I would like to talk about the Oregon-USC game. Let's not, like, fiddle-faddle around. Let's get right to the game, the Week 11 game that the state of Oregon probably is most tuned into is the USC-Oregon game kicking off at Autzen Stadium at 7.30 on Fox. Dan Lanning joined us yesterday on the show. I thought he was really good in yesterday's conversation. He texted me after the show, and I said uh, that was a really good interview. And he came on. He was candid. He was in a good mood. Stephen, you catch that in the interview? He did seem happier. I thought, you know, yesterday, because there's some times where he's a little short with some answers. Yes. He was going on and was telling stories and was excited. He wanted to hear about your neighbor drama again. Like, he, he was in a good mood. He was ready to talk. Trying to cause me he some He was trying drama. to cause some drama with you, though. Yeah. yeah. It's not really drama. I just forget sometimes. I explain this to him. It's not, I don't really have neighbor drama. I don't. I like my neighbors. I don't really know if they like me, and it doesn't. That's not really important. I don't spend any time worried about it if anybody likes me. Uh, and if you do spend time worrying about people liking you, you might try letting it go. It's liberating. Um, but anyway, I digress. I I just I do a radio show. I have a microphone in front of me for three hours. I am not a diplomatic person in that way. I don't have a filter, and so when nonsense comes up in the neighborhood or involving a neighbor i tend to talk about it and i had a neighbor who's no longer a neighbor now who um you know had an issue we had a fence that went up the neighbor was going well i think you put the fence on the property line it really should be on your side of the property line i said i'm happy to move it can you show me what you're talking about couldn't show me what she was talking about i kind of let it go because I kind of thought about it as like, is it re- are we really going to move this fence like three centimeters? And does it matter? Like if she had built the fence, I wouldn't have cared. So anyways, I we ended up with a surveyor who came out to the house and was looking at the fence line. And I talked about it on radio. And I talked about how ridiculous I thought it was. And I guess her husband or one of her kids was listening to the show and... We ended up having to have a conversation, like I was bringing it up on air, and I'm just saying, hey, it's something that's going on in my world. I, I tend, my mind's on it. I tend to bring it up. Like, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to trash you for your uh, your viewpoint, but um, the surveyor had a great, like, the surveyor was a normal human being, well-adjusted, rational human being, who had apparently been in the middle of a lot of these nasty neighborly disputes where he gets called out, and that people ask him, like, find the monuments, mark the property line, all of that. And he came out, and we kind of have this weird 
backyard property line that isn't straight. It's not like a right angle at the corner of the property. It kind of juts out in spots and whatnot. And he says, look, I pulled the pulled the maps. I've looked at it. He said, I could bring out surveying equipment, and I could do that. He goes, but what is this really about? And I, I pulled him aside, and I said, hey, man, I don't even care where the line is. I don't care if I'm six inches on this side of it or eight inches on that side of it. I, it doesn't really matter to me. Like, who cares? I said, but the neighbor lady's a little upset. And he said the same thing Dan Lanning said. He said, just go talk to her. So I tried to talk to her. I couldn't. I couldn't really have that conversation with her, but I had it with her husband. It was a great conversation, and we did put it to rest. But it this stuff comes up all the time. You know, my mother-in-law visits. She, I don't like to borrow things. I don't know how, where do you stand on that, Stephen? Do you borrow like a shovel, a cup of sugar, two eggs from your neighbor? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. Um, I think I would rather just, if I don't have it, I, I would definitely go to like my parents first rather than a neighbor. Like yes. it would be someone I trust. I don't want to ask a, like, you know, a random stranger for things, but I would prefer to have it myself. All right. So Anna's mother, and I'll get in trouble for this. Okay. I'm just saying, this is how I get in trouble. This is a great example. I will tell this story. Somebody who knows Anna's mom will tell Anna's mom, your son-in-law was talking about you on the radio. This is what he said. It'll get misconstrued in the same way that something I've said about Darius Miles or Marcus Mariota or uh, Jonathan Smith or Dan Lanning would get misconstrued. You know, it's the telephone game. But I digress. Again, uh, my mother-in-law is visiting. I don't like to borrow. I don't like to owe people. I don't like to borrow someone's shovel. If I don't have a shovel, I go get a shovel. If I don't have a cup of sugar, I'll go to the store and buy sugar. I don't I don't want to be I don't want to be in this transactional relationship with the people around me where I'm borrowing and bartering and I'm, you know, what do I owe you? What do you owe me? Somebody's keeping track of it. I don't it's not me. It's not me. And and my mother-in-law is different, very communal. And maybe it's an Asian culture thing. Maybe it's just her. But she visits and she goes around, and I almost think it's a social thing. She'll borrow from neighbors just to borrow. And I, I'm like, but we have that tool. <laughs> you know, like, I think she just wants to knock on the door and make friends. And so, but she'll borrow, like, a rake from the neighbor. I'm like, we have a rake. You know, like, what are we doing here? And Anna's like, just let her do her thing. This is what she does, you know. But um, I don't borrow. So I told that story on the air, and then the neighbor that she borrowed the rake from, said, you know, hell, you were trash-talking me on radio, my friend said. I was I'm not trash-talking you. I'm talking about my mother-in-law. I'm trash-talking my mother-in-law. Let's get it straight. But I just, I get in the, I told Dan Lanning, I get in this situation where, like, you know, I will tell the story. Like, I have a neighbor who put their Christmas lights up before Halloween. You can't do that. That's a violation. I, I had a yellow flag in my back pocket i would have driven by their house and i would have thrown it on their front lawn violation premature false start on christmas and i would have made the signal you can't put your christmas lights up prior to halloween you are not walgreens you can't do this like walgreens can do it but neighbor did it and they had the three wise men and everything in the front yard. And I was just like, "What? well, that's not, those aren't ghosts. I thought it was easily known that it was after Thanksgiving. Like, Thanksgiving is the deadline. Like, after that, cool. Do all this Christmas stuff. Before that, come on now. We knocked on the door of said neighbor, okay? And said neighbor said, oh, yeah, 
judgmental. And he said, we're, uh, we're trying to uh, explain to our kids why, uh, what Halloween's about. We're still kind of getting it. He had young children. I said, okay, well, you got Christmas down, <laughs> you know? Like, I just, I get myself in trouble. I have my only myself to blame. So I don't need Dan Lanning to me- mediate that, you know, or Anna. It's just going to be what it is. I'm not going to be borrowing a shovel, and I might get a dirty look now and then. But I love my neighbors, and it's not personal. I just tend to talk about the things that are going on around me. And uh, Anna w- is not built that way. She's much more diplomatic. And she, when a neighbor moves into the neighborhood... She brings the plate of cookies over to their house. I'm confused by it. It's just, not, it's just not, you know, not what I grew up with. Not what I. It's not my thing. It's not my jam. You know. Are you the cookie deliverer to the new neighbor guy? No, that that definitely not me. Uh, don't want, don't want to do that. But she goes out of her way, like she's on it. And I'm like, I'm glad somebody in our house is on that. And I'll get credit for it by extension, I guess. I guess I've blown my cover now. I mean, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely yeah. nice to be you know, friendly with the neighbors, but I don't want to be overly friendly. Like, I don't want to be friends, right? Like, I, it's the difference between being friends and being friendly. I don't want to say I don't want to talk to my neighbors, <laughs> but I host a radio show. I write a column. Sometimes when I'm coming home and I see a neighbor outside, I don't roll the window down. And Anna says that's antisocial. And I say, I'm just not in a place where I want to have a long conversation about, you know, whose grass is looking green and what's going on in the neighborhood. You just put the phone up to you your know? ear, pretend like you're having a yeah. conversation. I, but I have some neighbors I like. I have a neighbor named Stan who's, you know, he's a retired doctor. He's, I, I always see him. I like talking to Stan. I, I like talking to Ernie. I got a neighbor named Ernie who's a big Beaver fan. Got another guy named Gary who's a huge Husky fan, lives in the neighborhood. I, I like talking to those neighbors. Like, and, and here's the thing: Gary will hear about it. Like, he's got friends who listen to the show. I know he does. See that? But maybe that'll get. I'll get a little cred from that. Like, I like seeing that guy. He's always out, like edging his lawn. He's that guy. You know, his yard looks immaculate. You know, not me, but he uh, he's a diehard Husky fan and a former baseball player. So I can talk to that guy all day. Let's talk about USC and Oregon. Seven thirty Saturday on Fox. Dan Lanning was on the show, as I started to say. I asked him about Bo Nix. Here's what he had to say. No, you're right. He, he doesn't make mistakes. Um, and, and sometimes you, you could watch the film as a coach and you say, okay, I would have seen that different. But you know what Bo does with that play is he makes it a better play. So, um, you know, he's the kind of guy that is decisive out there in the field. He makes great decisions. He has a, a ton of confidence in himself and the players around him. Um, and then again, I've, I've, I say it every week, but this guy gets us into plays as well. He understands the game plan. I just left the game plan meeting um, just not that long ago, and, and Bo sits in that meeting with us. And uh, it's a bunch of coaches in the room. We're all sitting around, and guess what? It's our quarterback that's in that meeting as well. And he's talking about what his reads are, um, how does he see a play, and it lets us all get in sync in unison. So I don't get a lot of surprises on game day because we, we've already played the game so many times throughout practice in those meetings. A lot, a lot of help having a coach on the field. Two good quarterbacks in this game. Uh, this this game is interesting because the spread on the Oregon USC game opened up at Oregon being a fifteen and a half point favorite. It's down to fourteen and a half uh, on in some places, including FanDuel. And so I look, I like Oregon to win this game. I think Oregon could win by twenty one. And I think USC is going to get ambushed. You love USC. We totally disagree on this game. But I have it like 42-24, 42-21, something like that. Yeah, we totally disagree. I, I think USC 
stays in this game, and it just goes back to you know the downfield passing. Oregon's defense, especially the secondary, hasn't been tested much this year. The one game they were tested was against Washington, and they lost that game. Washington's the third best team uh, in yards per passing yards per attempt. USC number nine. Besides that, top team Oregon's face is Wazoo at 47. Like, it's a big difference, and I do think that USC is going to be able to score and keep this game close. I think Oregon's going to score a bunch too, uh, but I do think they get USC gets the little mini one-game bump of a new defensive coordinator. I got it Oregon 41, USC 35. I think the game's going to be a little closer than what a lot of people think. We'll see how that goes. Uh, let's, uh, let's turn the attention to the next game. If you are a big UCLA fan, you got UCLA at home at 6 o'clock on the Pac-12 Networks against Arizona State. Uh, got some quarterback problems at UCLA. Colin Schley was that quarterback at the end of UCLA's last game. ASU looks like it's out of gas. Uh, UCLA is a big favorite in this game. Eight, 18 and a half point favorite. It's now down to 17 and a half in some places. I really like UCLA, and I'm laying, uh, excuse me, I don't like UCLA because I think this game's going under. I think it's going to be a low-scoring game. So I'll take ASU in the points, but only because I think it's like it's got like twenty-one-seven written all over it. Yeah, I mean, I don't is you is UCLA really going to score you know eighteen points like you know favored by seventeen points? It just seems like a lot of points in that situation, and you know it's the exact opposite of USC Oregon. That game is going to be a lot of fun, a lot of points. This game could be just real ugly. So I'm with you. I think Arizona State uh, stays within the number. I think UCLA wins though. And Arizona State is getting their uh, quarterback back in this game. Like maybe it makes them a little better. I you know maybe they get. 10 points in this game. I don't know. Stanford's at Oregon State, 2.30 Saturday, Pac-12 Networks. Beavers have a very simple assignment. They have to win. You do that, and you stay alive in the conference championship race. I think it's a uh, big game for them. I had Jonathan Smith on the show. He talked about Stanford. Here's Oregon State's coach. Yeah, I mean, they got some wrinkles in there that they're going to try to do that. He, he sticks with what's successful. I mean, some of it, you run the quarterback, you're adding a number. In, in the run game. So defensively, you can't just sit there and have a big old one-post safety way back there. He's got to account for the for the quarterback, so you bring him down and then opens up opportunities to throw it down the field. That's where I'm back to. Each week, schematically, Troy is going to try to take advantage of what he sees out there, and uh, it could look different, quite a bit different, against us versus against UW versus you know Colorado, on and on. Now, look, Troy Taylor, early return, Stanford's 3-6. and six. I'm going to say thumbs up on him to this point. I think he, you know, he came back and had that big win at Colorado. That was a big one for him. They win last week at Washington State. That's another big win. They competed really well against Washington. Um, you know, but I still think there's a there's so much at stake for Oregon State and they're playing at home where they're so good. I think Oregon State gets win number 8. They're favored by 20 and a half points. I don't think they cover the 20-and-a-half. I think Stanford scores enough. Maybe it's a backdoor cover, but Stanford scores enough. So it's Stanford plus 20-and-a-half, but Oregon State wins. Yeah, Troy Taylor's been great coach this year, and I think going into the year, you know, their win total was two-and-a-half, three, some around her there, and it was that, well, that would mean Stanford has to win two Pac-12 games, and it seemed impossible at the time, especially, you know, after they lose to Sacramento State earlier in the year. You're thinking, man, this team's not going to win another game, but they've won two games, and uh, they are playing really hard and playing really well, just like Jonathan Smith said. I think though Oregon State is much more talented than Stanford, and they're not going to have to show a lot. I think this is going to be a real vanilla game plan. 
Oregon State, like you said, has a lot to play for. They know what's coming up uh, in front of them with the Washington and then Oregon. I think they're going to hold back a little bit. So they're going to go in, get in, get out, get the win, and then uh, get focused on the next two games. But uh, I think Stanford's going to stay within the number. Washington State at Cal, 1 o'clock Saturday, ESPN 2. Washington State started 4-0. They're now 0-5. They're in a weird slide. Jake Dickert, the coach at Washington State, spent a bunch of time this week talking about the fact that they don't have the buying power in the NIL world. It, it bothered me. I felt like it was distracting. Uh, but, you know, here's Dickert talking about the NIL world. You know, because I think in today's world you can no longer just say, like, passion and spirit's going to get you by anymore. I mean, it's just completely real that the NIL matters. And the facts are Washington State were way behind not even competitive in some aspects of the NIL, right? And, you know, recruiting, you get, I mean, these kids tell you what they're getting, you know? So, you know, Oregon State probably has us by 10X, you know? Arizona has us by 20X. I mean, USC, Washington, Oregon, who even knows, right? It's a whole other planet. Um, that's part of what we need, and it's very, very important. In three weeks, it's going to be open target season on our players. That's what it's going to be, and it's already started. Right, so no, that's what's coming. We need to provide them with as much resources as we possibly have here to keep this team together, to keep recruiting, to keep going. It's the it's the future of college football, and to ignore it or to ever think it's going to go away, uh, that's a long time in the horizon. Right, so I think it's only going to grow in some capacity, and I'm very supportive of the players getting a piece of the puzzle and, and profiting off their name, image, likeness. I've said that many times up here. Uh, but to think as a university and a program to be where we want to be and we know we should be, it's got to be a huge part of it. It has to be, especially at the forefront of the football program. Jake Dickert, speaking in that way this week, it bothered me. It makes me feel like he's waving the white flag a little bit. I know he won't. He would object to that, but it's what it sounds like to me that he's. It, it's an excuse. You were four and zero, oh, and you weren't complaining about NIL. Now you went zero oh and five, and now you're going hey. We can't compete in this world of NIL. Well, you you were the same school when you beat Wisconsin in week three. You were the same school when you beat Oregon State, who you're now saying has a bigger NIL collective than you have. So what is it? Like, I get it. The transfer portal's opening December 4th. You have to be worried about that. But you got beat by Stanford. They are not a transfer portal team last week. So... I like Cal in this game. They're at home. They're favored. I like home favorites, and I also don't like the way Washington State's talking. Yeah, I mean, you look. it certainly doesn't seem like a coach that's bought in right now, right? It does seem like he's throwing off the white flag. Completely different tone than what it was at 4-0. I mean, 4-0, they were on top of the world. We were thinking, man, is Washington State a legitimate contender? They have that bye week. They go to UCLA, and they look terrible, and they haven't recovered since. So it just seems like, you know what, it's one of those things where – he may be looking for his future, and I, it's understandable, you know, seeing how Washington State is. So I'm with you. I don't think Cal has necessarily thrown the season in yet. They played, uh, you know, they played decently hard against Oregon. I think Wilcox can get those guys going. So yeah, I'll take Cal to win, uh, win this game outright, and Washington State to lose their sixth straight, which is pretty wild to think about after their four game uh, start out four zero. Cal is a one and a half point favorite. I have him covering. You have him covering. Utah's at Washington, twelve thirty Saturday on Fox. Utah's seven and two. Opened as a ten and a half point underdog. That number has softened a little bit, down to nine and a half. Um, Michael Penix Jr. and Washington win this game. 
But I think Utah makes them uncomfortable. I like Utah in nine and a half. Greg McElroy, listen to what he had to say here, Stephen, before you go. McElroy's calling Washington a sneaky physical team. I don't agree with this. I don't think they're physical at all. I think that they benefited a week ago running the football on a bad defense, a bad USC defense. That's why I think Utah's going to give them troubles. But McElroy, not sold on Utah. Washington's a really sneaky physical team. They're not they're not like soft. I know a lot of people will think, well, they throw it all over the yard. They must be soft. They're not soft. I can promise you that. But I don't know if they're as physical as Utah. Now, Kyle Weddingham's Utah teams are almost always amongst the most physical in the country, and this year is no different. Now, they were embarrassed a couple weeks ago on a national stage by Oregon. And I would imagine that they really view this opportunity as a significant one because it could change the perception of not just their program, but how they're viewed amongst the national media. Because I'm not sold on Utah at the moment. I'm going to be honest. I'm not sold on them at all. I think their offense is very, very, very inconsistent. So if they can get it going against Washington, that'll change my opinion. I think it'll change a lot of others' opinion as well. Utah Utah, he doesn't sold on. He thinks Washington's physical. I disagree. I think Washington is very average in that physicality department. I think Utah is really physical. I, I think Utah hangs around for that reason. I have it like 34-28, Washington winning. But I'll take Utah in the 9.5, 10.5. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying about Washington being physical and you know all that kind of stuff. But I do think that the offensive inability of Utah is going to rear its ugly head again. Just like it did against Oregon, um, I don't know that they're going to score a lot of points, and I think that this Washington offense is going to score. So I, I kind of changed my mind on this one. I thought Utah would keep it close. I think Washington uh, wins by two scores and you know wins by double digits and covers the game. It's not going to be as bad as the Oregon-Utah game, but I do think that that Utah offense is not good. And in a situation like this, uh, up in Seattle, I think it's going to be tough for Bryson Barnes to get anything going. So I'm going to take Washington, and I'm going to lay the points. The spread, I just looked at the spread. It opened at 10.5. Is at 9.5 on on uh, Wednesday and Thursday. It's down to 8 now. <sighs> you, Washington minus 8. So if you wait till kickoff, you might get it at 7. Who knows? Uh, moving on. Finally, Arizona's at Colorado. 11 a.m. Saturday, Pac-12 Network. Uh, the trend is your friend. Arizona's won three straight. Played, playing everybody tough. Buffaloes can't stop anybody. Arizona's favored by 10. I think they cover the 10. Arizona 31, Colorado 17. Yeah, I said this earlier in the week, John. I think Arizona, they're going to win out. I think they're going to end the season with two conference losses and really make a lot of chaos for the tiebreaker situation in the Pac-12. So I think Arizona is one of the best teams, and Jet Fish one of the best coaches. So I think they go into Colorado and they win big, uh, just out-physical Colorado. Colorado is real reeling uh, going to the end of the season. All right, so, so it's a big weekend for you and I. We disagree on Oregon-USC. You're taking USC and the points, mm -hmm. and we disagree on Utah and Washington. You're taking both road teams, and uh, excuse me, you're taking the home team in the Washington game, you're taking the road team in the USC game. You like Washington to cover, I don't. You like USC in the points, I don't. We'll see how that shakes out. Some parting thoughts coming up. You got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. I had a neighbor who used to live across the street from me who was named Brian. Brian was an engineer and a smart guy, and he was a Dallas Cowboys fan. He had two sons, and they played lacrosse. And I liked Brian. He's a good guy. And uh, one Saturday morning, uh, or maybe it was a Sunday morning, Brian came and knocked on my door. And uh, he said, uh, what are you watching? 
And I thought that was an interesting thing. He he wanted to know where my mind was. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I very rarely have a free morning. And I think his kids were with uh, with mom and they were off doing something. And uh, he said, I, I very rarely have a free morning, a free day to watch, to just watch sports. And I want to make it count. And so he's like, well, what are you watching? And I have the heart to tell Brian that I was tuned into HGTV. I, I wasn't even watching like an NFL morning show or whatever. I had uh, HGTV was on in the background of whatever else I was doing. But uh, I think about that every weekend. I usually think about it on Fridays because we obviously have a huge sports calendar this weekend. Like, I'm really curious to see how is Michigan going to play? In, you know, with Michigan was a four-and-a-half-point favorite in their football game this weekend, and then the Jim Harbaugh news came out, and all of a sudden uh, that spread um, – that spread moved to uh, to even. They're at Penn State tomorrow in an early game. And that spread went from Michigan being a four-and-a-half-point favorite to being a pick essentially, on the news of Jim Harbaugh and the suspension and the Big Ten Conference cracking down. And So I'm going to be curious tomorrow morning, early, just to see how does number two Michigan look against number nine Penn State? Does what, you know, what's going on affect the, the Wolverines on the field? And uh, regardless of how you feel about that, I think it's an interesting sociological experiment. Uh, obviously, my mind will be on the Pac-12 conference as the day evolves. Huge day in the conference. It all, they're all big now, right, from here on out. But Arizona in the morning game at 11 a.m. on the Pac-12 networks at Colorado. be curious to see uh, if Arizona is going to be as good as I think they are. Obviously, I'm picking them to win that game, and I think they've really turned a corner under Jed Fish. But... I'll watch a little bit of that Arizona game. We're getting at 8-1, trying to keep pace in this college football playoff race. and try to. Oregon essentially is trying to um, make the Week 7 loss at Washington a nothing burger. You know, they win this game. They beat ASU next week on the road. Uh, all they have to do is win the Civil War to get to the conference championship game. And, and, and you know, I think if Duck fans had their druthers, uh, they would like to see Washington in Las Vegas. For all the marbles, because it gives Oregon the ultimate opportunity to avenge the early season loss, and and I said it earlier in the week, and I'm gonna I'm gonna punctuate it here. I don't think Washington's fans want to play Oregon in Las Vegas. I think Oregon's fans all want to play Washington, and I I think what's rooted in that's not just vengeance. I think that Oregon fans know that Oregon's the better team, and I think Washington fans know it too in their hearts of hearts. Uh, you know, and I you know, look credit to Washington. They're undefeated. They've earned the early kickoff slot. They beat Oregon. They're in the driver's seat. They went out. They'll be the one seed in the Pac-12 conference championship game. But um, very difficult to go undefeated. And frankly, if I'm Washington, the team, the one team I don't want to play is Oregon. They have the potential to wreck your season in Las Vegas. All right, I appreciate everybody who makes this radio show part of their day, part of their week. Great guest today, Mike Riley, the former Oregon State head football coach, was fantastic. Yesterday, we had Dan Lanning on. He was great, too. Uh, if you missed that interview, grab the podcast. Uh, Jonathan Smith on Wednesday, he was, he was great as well. Next week, we're going to be focused a little bit in the early part of the week on the Whitman County Superior Court case in Colfax on Tuesday. It'll be the PAC two against the ten departing schools, Judge, uh, Judge Gary Leiby in his courtroom. I don't know if he's going to rule on Tuesday. Some people think he'll rule. Some people think he'll uh, 
He'll step back and take a couple days to make a ruling, but a very important court case and an important step in that progression and that development happening on Tuesday in Colfax. So we'll keep an eye on that. All right, grab a podcast of this radio show wherever you listen to it. I appreciate those of you who are reading me at johnconzano.com. If you're not already subscribed, get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. What works for you works for me. I appreciate those of you out there that come up to me at games and say, hey, I subscribe, I read you. That means a lot to me. It's very personal. You know, I'm, I'm pouring myself into it. I'm loving it. I'm having more fun than ever. And, uh, you know, I'm able to travel and go where I want to go, write about what I think needs to be written about, but that only happens because you're out there reading, and I appreciate you for it. All right, the bald-faced truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. Have a great weekend, everybody.